Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No, because I'm going to get him. Ladies and gentlemen, this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. So thankful that you're joining us tonight. Really, thank you. It's it's great to be on video again. Last night we had a little bit of an issue. I don't know exactly what happened, but uh, it's it's great to be it's great to be back on camera. Of course, we broadcast live each and every weeknight, seven to ten p.m. Eastern time, right here on the Global Star Radio Network. Thank you, Global Star, for carrying us. Also on BTR Blog Talk Radio, great uh, great company as well. Uh, and of course, right here on YouTube Live, uh, we two websites: HagmanReport.com, Hagman and Hagman.com, Hagman and Hagman for, of course, for the show. Hagman Report for the uh, show information. And I would like to remind everyone to go there all of the time. Look for the old time radio, and there you can get the show notes for the week. And of course, we've got a great, uh, great episode lined up for you this evening as well. And uh, it's it's our pleasure, by the way, to welcome to the show. We're going to get right into it, uh, Adam K. Levin. If you don't know who this gentleman is, you haven't been paying attention. Mr. Levin is a consumer advocate. He's got more than thirty years, three, more than three decades of experience in uh, in finance, personal finance, privacy, real estate, government service. I mean, this guy do- has done it all. Former director of the New Jersey Division of Consumer Affairs, Mr. Levin is the chairman. And uh, founder of Cyber Scout, formerly IDT911, and co-founder of Credit.com, serves as a spokesman for both companies. He's a former, or he's an expert on personal finance, uh, credit, identity management, fraud, privacy, and of course, right before the the, the episode, I was explaining how um, someone exploited my personal finances and. Um, well, I was the victim of fraud, credit card fraud, uh, last year. And, uh, it's, it's, uh, oh, it's, it's never, it's never fun when that happens. And, and we're seeing today, everything's, everything's connected. Uh, the world is connected through this vast array of cyber stuff. So we're going to be talking about, uh, talking about that as well as what's going on in the world in general with respect to, um, well, the, uh, vault, uh, from Vault 7 to, uh, to WikiLeaks, to everything, to, to phishing scams, I mean, you name it. So it's our pleasure to welcome Adam K. Levin. His website is adamlevin.com. That's L-E-V-I-N. It's in the show notes. You can get to it. Uh, tr- tremendous guy. Again, if you haven't, uh, he's been on Fox, ABC News. He's got a column, regular column he writes, um, on, on various websites, actually. But, uh, Mr. Levin, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. My goodness. Uh, I never really thought I'd be talking to you. I mean, I've seen you on, on so many programs. It's, it's really, it's great to, it's great to see you, uh, on ours. Um, of course, Joe, I should bring Joe on. Joe, come on board, man. Yeah, it's great to be here. And again, our, our guest is Adam Levin. AdamLevin.com is the website. He has a book out called Swiped. Yes. And you can bookmark yes. his website and check out all the information up there. As you can see from our YouTube screen, um, he's got stuff about, uh, personal finances, identity theft. And a number of other uh, important 
issues that we see front and center in the news today. Uh, Mr. Levin, welcome to the show. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much. And remember, our slogan is scaring is caring. <laughs> I like that. Well, it's easy to get scared in the world today uh, with respect to the you know all the cyber stuff, the identity theft and the uh, credit card scams and the phishing scams. And you even have, uh, I noticed on your website, of course, no one is immune uh Vice President's not even immune from all of this, but but let's if you don't mind, let's open with your book because I find a lot of value in your book, Swiped, which is available, of course, um, in many outlets. Uh, but but the, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about your book, Swiped. Well, thanks. Well, you know, it's based on the premise that breaches have become the third certainty in life, buying death and taxes. <laughs> as much as we'd all like to believe that we can prevent becoming victims of identity theft. We really can't, because let's say as a consumer, and we can talk about businesses too, but as a consumer, you can do everything right. But if your information is on the wrong database at the wrong moment, when the wrong person gains unauthorized access, and that information contains your Social Security number, you're going to be looking over your shoulder for the rest of your life. Uh. So the, 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 the theory behind the book really is we know that prevention would be great, and we should certainly do everything we can we have to look at this in terms of what I call the three M's. How to monitor, minimize your risk of exposure, how monitor, how do you monitor most effectively, and how do you manage the damage? You know, and I have to say, at least in my case, we do things like that in reverse. I'm trying to, to, to minimize the damage, um, <laughs> you know, first, and then I'm thinking, okay, how do I close the barn door? Um and again, this is something that, that I've heard from so many people here just lately that they're, they're victims of, uh, various types of scams and identity frauds and, you know, all of this. Um, if you can just select one thing, and, and I'm kind of shooting from the hip here because I, I wasn't going to start here, but I kind of want to start here anyway. Sure. What would you recommend? Um, you, people, I know my wife shops on Amazon. Um, my wife, shops online a lot. I shouldn't say Amazon. She shops online. Right. And she's putting the debit card number in and stuff. I'm just thinking, wow, man, you know, I mean, how can we protect ourselves or do you have like a magic way of doing it? And I know your book addresses some of this, but well, yeah. There, there are certain things. First of all, you mentioned the magic words debit card. And my first piece of advice is never use your debit card when you shop online at the risk of having banks across the world chasing after me with sharp weapons. Use a credit card. Because remember, with a credit card, it's their money. With a debit card, it's your money. You have more time to find out if you really have a problem. And if you have a problem, you can shut it down pretty quick. With a debit card, the problem is that it goes right into your bank account. And that money comes out of your bank account. Even assuming the bank completely agrees with you that that you were a victim of fraud and they're going to return your money, some banks have a 24-hour policy, but some banks could take up to 10 days to return the money based on whatever they investigate. Mm. And as a result, if that's money that you need for groceries or tuition or rent or mortgage or your car payment, uh, you could be late. You could have a problem. And why do you want to pay late fees? And why would you want to face the possibility of having angry creditors. So use a credit card. But my you know, ultimate advice really is when you're operating online, 
don't just click on links. Uh, know where they go. Use real websites. Verify their uh, authenticity before you go. Make sure they say HTTPS uh, in the address line, and you see the little lock on it. Um, you know, to, to take Ronald Reagan one step further, never trust, always verify when you shop online. That's a good piece of advice. And that goes um, as well, because, for example, our bank, uh, we receive an ATM card or a card in the in the mail or from the bank, and it could be used, quote, as a credit card or as a debit card, point of sale card. Uh, but what you're saying is even using, or, or I'll ask you in the form of a question, if I use that card that doubles as a credit slash debit card, it's really always a, a, a credit card because it directly accesses your account or a debit card. Well, yeah, it's a debit card. I mean, you know, the whole controversy between debit and credit when it came to those cards really related to fees that could be charged merchants based on the different processing system that it would go through. So use a real credit card uh, always. All right. Okay. And and thank you for that. Um, did you hear that, honey? Are you listening? <laughs> <laughs> All right. And, folks, I mean, this is important information because, um, in fact, right before the show, I was talking with a, with a colleague who, who said, you know, hey, um, they had a problem with uh, – one of the very same issues that we're, we're speaking of. Author of the book, Swipe, by the way. It's a fantastic, indispensable book, uh, especially today. And I, I believe Mr. Levin's book, Swipe, is perhaps one of the most important uh, field manuals for operating in today's digital society. That's my view. And, of course, uh, you can check out all of the reviews online. Um, what's on your radar, if I can ask? What is on your radar right now? As you look over the landscape of the country, the globe, everything that's taken place, you're the, you've got one of the top the top fifty cybersecurity blogs in on the planet. Um, so we're going to kick it to you. What what are you looking at all over the place here? Well, you know the thing that worries me the most, and I, I go back to the 2016 elections, and I'm not going to debate. With anybody, you know, who did it, what, what they did, and if it had an outcome or not. What's of greater concern to me is the whole issue of where cybersecurity stands, uh, when we're talking about the whole host of issues that we face. And people were much more concerned and focused on building a wall with Mexico than they were on the issue of what I call the cyberdome. And and it, it shouldn't be. I mean, the reality is that the Cold War has been replaced by the Cyber War, and we're living in a world where everywhere you turn, there are breaches, that we are not training as many people as we need to in this country to become cybersecurity professionals. We have a Congress that can't agree on the day of the week. We have a, a, a U.S. government that has been breached uh, like nobody's business. And, you know, I, I work with an awful lot of businesses around the world, and we are trying to pressure them more and more uh, to be more uh, safe when it comes to cyber hygiene. And, you know, it's very tough when a business says, so you're asking me, and I don't have anywhere the resources, the United States government, uh, that I have to be safer and more locked up than the government of the United States, which every time you turn around, they're being breached by somebody. 
Now, in the case of this recent WikiLeaks situation, I mean, here you have the top spy agency in the U.S., basically with its secrets all over the place. And, you know, whether you want to accept the argument of, is it really stuff we didn't know? Or, you know, somebody said something recently, I thought, as they said, that Edward Snowden put out the playbook. But this newest WikiLeaks leak is the blueprint. And, you know, this is of great concern to me. And, you know, there are so many scams, and we can talk about a lot of the scams because they're fascinating and scary. The reality still is, I don't know whether the government of the United States takes the whole issue of cybersecurity as seriously as it should. Interesting. And, well, it's evident, obviously, just from what we see. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the contents of the Vault 7. Mr. Levin, I don't know how much you've looked into what was released so far. And you made the statement, you know, is it stuff that just confirms what we already knew, or is there new information in there? One of the most dangerous things I see with it was the release of the different tools that are used to infiltrate networks and computers and phones. And apparently that's just out there on the Internet for any hacker or anybody to grab. At the same time, they're putting out headlines that say, you know, WikiLeaks is going to work with tech giants to make better products that are immune from hacking. But I want to ask you this. Is there such thing as products that are immune from hacking if they're connected to the Internet? Anything that's connected to the Internet could well be hacked. And, you know, one of the things they talked about in the WikiLeaks, and that has been brought to the fore by a lot of the commentators, is the fact that, yes, you have, for instance, messaging apps that are pretty secure. They're encrypted from end to end. But the problem is if the device itself is hacked, that doesn't help you. So just like when people talk about, you know, the EMV cards or the chip and pin, even though in this country they're chip and signature because somebody made a decision that Americans aren't smart enough to remember pin numbers, which is ridiculous. The problem is that there is a false sense of security because while it will cut down fraud card present transactions, everybody is shopping online. And when you shop online, you have to give all the information anyway, the same information that you would give if there was a magnetic stripe. So, you know, there are things where it sounds like maybe we're doing a better job and we're trying to do a better job, but we aren't necessarily doing a better job. Now, one other note that I would give is, you know, a lot of people say, well, all we hear about is everybody hacking us. We never really hear about what's going on with us versus other people. And the answer is because, A, we have breach notification laws in this country, and, B, on top of which anybody that hacks us seems to want to leak the fact that they've hacked us. Whereas when we hack a foreign country, especially an unfriendly foreign country, they're not going to issue press releases. And our intelligence agencies don't really want to say anything about it because their attitude is they would rather not let anyone know what we're doing and where we're doing it, where the military is saying, wait a minute, we need to make, we need to get loud about this. We need to say to people, we are striking back. We are doing this stuff. We are offensively attacking other countries, you know, when we're 
uh, concerned about what they're doing. So, I mean, you've got all of these competing interests going on and all of these issues flying back and forth. Interesting. Um, I'm going to ask this question while it's, it's fresh on my mind. The chips that they've put inside debit cards, um, I've seen a lot of, of uh, merchants and, and cashiers say that it, it makes it safer. Uh, it's less, it's not as hard it's harder to steal the information when you use the chip. Um, from what you've seen, is, the, is, that the, is there any truth to the chip making the card more safe? Well, the, the chip definitely makes it more difficult to counterfeit, which is really the issue, is because information would be stolen at point-of-sale systems and then used to counterfeit cards. When you have a chip, the chip is you know ever-evolving. It's changing. Numbers are changing. And so think of it almost as checks in a checkbook that every time you write a check... You go to the next number. So in one sense, yes, they're, they're harder to counterfeit. But all that's really happened is the bad guys have simply moved online where more and more people are shopping online. And as you know, doesn't matter if you have a chip card online, you're still giving away the credit card number and the expiration date, and in many cases, the security card on the back of the card. So it, the, the information is still out there. Interesting. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, that that, that is the case. Um, how, how does Mr. Levin shop online? Ah, well, I use a credit card. Okay. And I, and I go to websites that I know are the real deal. Uh, sometimes I will use the actual app connected with the real retailer. Um, certainly, uh, for instance, when I do anything on my mobile phone, I only do it from an environment that I know is secure. I don't use public Wi-Fi when I shop. I don't use public Wi-Fi to do financial transactions. I don't use free public Wi-Fi to even check email because I'm a little neurotic about that. Uh, so I use VPNs, and I, I'm much more security-minded. But that doesn't mean that I'm still not vulnerable. Anything can happen. I also have a four-and-a-half-year-old son and uh, if my phone is down and he gets his hands on it sometimes, one never knows. And I always tell people, you know, this is the concern that really we have in terms of breaches in businesses in this country and, frankly, all over the world. You know, the whole concept of bring your own device or use, uh, you know, your personal devices when doing business-related things, even if you use a VPN, which is that virtual private network, which think of it as like a secure tube, an encrypted tube, the problem is it depends upon, you know, where you're using it. If you're home, if your child gets anywhere near your computer and your computer suddenly gets a malware infection or somebody clicks on the wrong link in the household, and that could literally travel through and infect networks. So, I mean, we are exposed. And even as you do everything that you can to shield yourself from the problem, Um it's just, it's a reality. That's why, you know, when you talk about closing the barn door, well, one of the most important things in the world we live in now is knowing someone is in the barn in the first place. <laughs> and that's where all the different forms of monitoring come in. So, you know, you do what you can to minimize your exposure, to reduce your attackable surface. And one other thing is, how do you really reduce your attackable surface in a world where you have six billion Internet of Things devices Growing, they anticipate in the next few years to over 20 to 40 billion Internet of Things devices. Everything from cars, HVAC systems, uh, security systems, baby monitors, 
Um, even, believe it or not, a smart mattress cover. This is where you'll be able to put a cover on your bed. It will determine what the firmness is that helps you sleep. It will then be in a position to turn on and off the heat, on and off the lights, up and down the air conditioning. It may even in, in the future be able to turn on your coffee pot when you wake up. All these things are connected, and they all are hackable. That just gave me the willies. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Smart mattress cover. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, you, you know, with the with, with the uh, leak of Vault Seven, WikiLeaks, um, a lot of that to me, the the files were kind of gobbledygook in terms. It, it, it seemed to be more technical, and there, there's a lot of technical stuff. Have you looked at those the uh, Vault Seven? Have you looked through the files? Just a little bit, a little bit, because I mean, I've sort of been in the midst of a variety of different things, but. You know, the truth is, I'll, I'll take it on face value from a lot of the people that I respect that there is information, that it is of great concern. It may be of less concern what it says and the fact that it's out there. Now, the WikiLeaks people said that they're not going to actually publish the, the actual software, the codes or anything. Right. You know, that's what they say today and that they're going to work with the companies. And, you know, one of the disturbing things that you hear is that the CIA has been collecting vulnerabilities and they haven't necessarily, well, they haven't been sharing what they discover with the companies that have, you know, created the different apps and everything else where they found the vulnerabilities, which, again, is the whole issue of military versus um, intelligence, where intelligence doesn't want to tell anyone anything. They just want to keep gathering and gathering and gathering. But meanwhile... While they're gathering, it's it's not just about the companies. It's about we're all collateral damage. That that unless a company understands the vulnerability and then patches the vulnerability, if we don't know and they don't know, that means the vulnerability continues, and that means that we are all susceptible to becoming victims of compromise. Uh, because let's face it, if the CIA does it and Nation states do it. You can bet your bottom dollar that there are a lot of bad guys out there that also are hacking into this that know where the vulnerabilities are. That was the whole debate over backdoors to encryption. If you, if you create a backdoor to encryption, don't assume only the forces of good will have access to it. And again, it depends upon your definition of the forces of good. The, true. Different definitions for different people. Yeah, I, I understand that. Folks, we're talking with Adam Levin. He's the author of a book called Swiped, and, and this is in, indispensable in my view, How to Protect Yourself in a World Full of Scammers, Fishers, and Identity Thieves. It's available on Amazon. Yeah, seriously, it's one of the best investments anyone can make, especially if you do any shopping at all, or if you have a debit card, credit card, or if you care about, look, if you're a human being, in living yeah. in today's society, this is a good book to have, um, and I found it to, to be of ex- excellent value and excellent importance. Um, of course, uh, it, you can get it on Amazon, but uh, uh, Mr. Levin's website is adamlevin.com. dot uh, com. We got about two minutes before the bottom of the hour break here. Um, the uh, well, what, I guess before before the break. The book itself, Swiped, uh, you've got a lot of praise for it. If you could pick out one single thing that uh, 
people would get from that book. Tell us about that. The, the thing that I really hope they get more than anything is that we really have to step up our game and we have to understand that there are people out there that are preying on us and they're always looking for a point of vulnerability. They're looking for a crack or crevice into our lives because they know we're busy. We all have day jobs. We are distracted. And we have to remember that we are up against people where we are their day job. And for people who say, I'm just a regular person, why would anyone care about me? But what everyone has to remember is, to a hacker, to a scammer, each and every one of us is Kim Kardashian. We have what they want. They want our data. They want to use our data to commit medical fraud, to commit tax fraud, to commit child identity theft, to commit crimes with trails of breadcrumbs leading back to us as opposed to them, to open accounts and exploit us to make money for them. And that's why, doesn't matter how many laws there are or even how effectively they're enforced, at the end of the day, the ultimate guardian of the consumer is the consumer, and the more educated and aware we are of the dangers and how to find out that we are exposed and have a plan in the event we find out we have a problem, the better. Very good. Uh, our guest, Adam Levin, or Levin, I'm sorry, Excuse me, AdamLevin.com. Yeah, I can. I'll learn to take a sip of coffee before I start talking again. Again, his book uh, swiped. It's indispensable, especially as we're living in the digital age. When we get back from the uh, bottom of the break here in three minutes, uh, I'm gonna, uh, Mr. Levin. I'm, I want to ask you about uh, not just the well, the, the, the your opinion on. And, and Joe and I were talking about this before the before the uh, show. Your opinion opinion on the accusations of hacking, uh, and, and I know everyone's got a different opinions, but but as a cybersecurity expert, the hacking on the uh, on the DNC, what we saw with uh, with WikiLeaks with respect to the elections, and your just general feeling as to what what's going on aside from the politics with respect to the. Uh, the uh, alleged hacking uh, that's or and or the alleged Russian interference. Folks, listening to the Hagman and Hagman Report, our guest again, Adam Levin, adamlevin.com. His book, Swiped, absolutely indispensable for today's world. I want to thank each and every one of you for listening tonight and for tuning in. Global Star Radio Network, BTR, and, of course, YouTube Live, website hagmanreport.com. Visit that. And also, please, bookmark or subscribe to our YouTube channel, that does elevate us in vis- visibility. We're right back. Stay right where you're at. Visit HagmanReport.com for the news and articles that matter most. Stay tuned. We will be right back. In a thrilling series of novels, T.C. Joseph takes us into the lives of three families who struggle to maintain normal lives in a world where conspiracy theory and Bible prophecy collide. 
T.C. Joseph's viewpoint of alternative history and understanding of prophetic events will change your view of the world and the events on our horizon. Kirkus Review states, Readers of End Times Fiction will be hard-pressed to find it done more intriguingly than this. Extremely readable and fast-paced. Blue Week Reviews boldly states, Fans of Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series and Tom Parada's The Leftovers will find this thought-provoking series absolutely riveting. Order your copies of T.C. Joseph's This Generation series from Amazon.com. Book 1, Precipice. Book 2, Pentecost. And Book 3, Penance. Uncertain times, it makes sense to have a sustainable backup method to cook food and boil water. If your current plan includes using a fuel burning stove or cooking over an open fire, then there's a much better way. The Miniman Rocket Stove is a biomass burning cooking stove that only requires small quantities of sticks and twigs for fuel. The Miniman Stove is easy to use, smokeless, portable, powerful, and sustainable. For the finest in survival cooking stoves and fire starters made right here in the USA, go to MinutemanStove.com. That's MinutemanStove.com. You may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood, a murder investigation based upon a true story by private investigator Douglas J. Hagman. Using the character Mark Stiles, Hagman takes you on a journey behind the scenes where the homicide becomes a secondary to an underworld of satanic ritual abuse, child abduction, and even mind-controlled experimentation. A world dismissed as conspiracy by those who want to keep its secrets hidden. Exposing the dangers, denials, and deceptions. For five years, a brutal killer remained on the loose, free to kill again. As Mark struggles to navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in his community and beyond. Stain by Blood. Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stain by Blood. Talking among ourselves here, folks. Welcome back to the welcome back to this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. It, it, it's it's fun um, to talk both with our guests and talk amongst ourselves here in the studio. Our guest is uh, Adam Levin. He's the author of just a tremendously important book called a Swipe, titled Swiped. And if you've ever look, if you have a debit card, if you have a bank account, if you have an identity, if you if you if you've got a legal identity, you need to get this book. Um, it's important because <laughs> did you ever try to pick up the pieces seriously after your identity has been stolen or your bank account has been hacked? It is a full-time job. So he's written an indispensable book about that. Swipe is the title. Adam Levin is the author. AdamLevin.com, L-E-V-I-N. It's in our program description as well. Joe, I'm going to kick it over to you. We want to, we want to thank Lanai. Right, Lenai Clark. Is that your your um? Oh, Lelani. Oh, I'm sorry. Lelani Clark, uh, publicity director for AdamLevin.com. Yeah. Uh, big thank you for setting up this interview. 
Yeah. She was very, she was very excited to see her name in print. We you made her day. I'll tell you that. Well, she made our. <laughs> you're making our day. I'll tell you. Um, you know, during the break. Uh, well, before the break, I, I was asking about the. Uh, I was asking about the uh, the. Uh, the hacking of the DNC and the alleged the allegation of Russian influence. What's the, and, and I know you you're not directly involved in this, but from your perspective, what can you tell us about this? Well, you know, from everything I've seen and heard, and people I've talked to in the cybersecurity community, my colleagues, and I mean, they're pretty convinced it really was Russia. I certainly think the intelligence uh, committees and the intelligence community is convinced it was Russia. They certainly see in the code, in the malicious code, uh, they see uh, coding that would indicate that the particular hacking groups, Cozy Bear uh, and Fuzzy Bear or the bears, and my question, based on the first information release, is WikiLeaks uh, the third bear in all of this? Who knows? But, you know, the reality is, we have a tendency to leave ourselves unprotected, uh, and even with the Podesta breach and all the email that's floating around out there, uh, I always tell people, listen, uh, assume that anything you put in email one day could end up in the equivalent of skywriting. <laughs> the, old joke, the old joke in the political community years ago is whatever you put in writing, assume one day will end up on the front page of the New York Times. Oh, yeah. Uh, just even situations where I see all sorts of strange breaches and the W-2 scams and then the wire transfer fraud scams. I always say to people, how is it when you get an email that's theoretically from the boss? You don't pick up the phone or get up out of your chair and walk around the corner or take the escalator upstairs or the elevator and simply ask someone, did you send me this email? You're asking me to wire money to someplace I've never wired money to before. Or you're asking me to forward by email the W-2 backup information to you? Did you really do that? <laughs> and, uh, you know, this is another problem. But for instance, you know, one of the scams out there is the, you know, the IRS scam. You get a call from somebody who says from the IRS, and they ask you for information. Well, the IRS never makes phone calls like that. Or you get an email from the IRS asking you to provide information. They don't send email. You get a call from your bank, and uh, it's okay if your bank says, we just would like you to confirm these transactions because they seem suspicious. But the minute anyone asks you, by the way, could you flip over your card and read your security code? <laughs> or can you give us your social security number because we want to confirm you're you? Yep. Hang up. You know, the only time you authenticate yourself is when you're in control of the conversation and you're calling an organization and they don't know who you are, so they have a right to say, prove to us you are who you say you are. Well, yep. you know, same thing with, with email and people falling for all the email scams. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, you mentioned the IRS scam. Uh, we've gotten three or four calls uh, are here at the studio. Yeah, uh, hi, the this is the IRS. Yeah, well, there's uh, a warrant out for your we're, arrest. Yeah, we're, we're calling because you had con uh, conducted fraudulent activity oh. against the IRS. Please call us back. And, and no you know, names, no nothing. So, so what, what I, I got to tell you, what I did was uh, we copied down the phone number, had the phone here. We got like on all three calls, and we attempted to call them back on air, uh, obviously knowing it's a scam, to, to expose the, their misdeeds, but... Uh, the numbers are always changed. They're always different. You know, it's 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 you're always chasing that. Uh, but I can't believe people fall for that. 
Oh, I, listen, I've got stories for you on people. I mean, I heard of a story recently of, a, of, of people uh, who, uh, two women came to their door, said they were IRS agents. They wanted to talk to them about a tax return from a few years ago. They were let into the house, and then uh, the, the, the wife was running around the house for an hour trying to locate the tax return. Meanwhile, while she wasn't looking, they were going through her house stealing her daughter's driver's license and anything that wasn't nailed down. They, they did that. Um, wow. The people could call and they say we're from the IRS and you owe us money. We want it now and give us, put it on a credit card. Um, and, you know, scam after scam. The scams get, well, you know, the, there's the jury commission scam, which sounds very real. You get a phone call. They say they're from the jury commission. They are, uh, they are checking the eligibility of a pool of jurors and would you please give them your social security number so they can confirm that you're an eligible juror um, that sounds almost believable though no I understand that but wow. again you know it's, it, the theory is if you're calling me you must know who I am so why am I confirming me to you uh, but I'm happy to call you back the other thing that's a problem too is when someone calls you on the phone and you look at your caller ID Oftentimes, it will look like it's an official number because these folks are really good at spoofing phone numbers. Sure. And that's why never, again, never believe what you see on your caller ID. Do not believe when you, like, for instance, you get an email and it's from a retailer you've done business with and they ask you to click on a link. Even if it's legitimate, don't do it. Go to the website of the retailer or go to the website of your bank or of whomever it is you think you're communicating with, make sure you independently confirm that it's the real deal. Charities, fake charities. Uh, anytime there's some disaster in the world, there are all sorts of fake charities that appear asking you to give money, and uh, many of them have just been created by scammers and hackers. Or news events. Uh, there are scam sites out there that will push up their relevance on search engines uh, hoping, like for instance, you want to see the real card that said Moonlighting as opposed to La La Land at the Academy Awards? Click here. Uh, they always prey on on on. Son an of event a gun! Of I the, knew I knew I shouldn't have clicked that. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, it was just us. We were testing. You know? <laughs> yeah, and it's it is amazing, by the way. Um, the, the I don't know. They they call that clickbait, or is that something different? But it's amazing. <laughs> My goodness, you know, um, but, but yes, okay. Uh, you must have, you must have a ton of uh, stories that you could tell, um, <laughs> horror stories. Um, how many different types, and we, we, you had mentioned this or referenced this earlier, how, how many different types of hackers are there? Did, did, we didn't go over this, right? Off there, uh, on there. No, no we, we okay. and there are four types of hackers. They're the state sponsored hackers. Now, they're not only the people that are feasting on the information in federal agencies and state agencies and businesses. Um, and, you know, you everything from the Office of Personal Management hack, which was, to my way of thinking, the most egregious hack of all, because there they got 21.5 million sets of, uh, of Social Security numbers, 19 million uh, investigative reports with the most intimate details of people's lives, because people were applying to get a security clearance maintain a security clearance or increase a security clearance, as well as 5.6 million sets of fingerprints. 
I can tell you, you can't change your Social Security number. The only expiration date on Social Security numbers is the day you die, and even then it doesn't matter until that number gets on the Social Security death index. And five million sets of fingerprints where they don't expire until you expire. As a spy, you can change everything, but you're not going to be able to change your fingerprints without going through a lot of agony to do it, and not many spies are willing to do it. That was devastating. The Sony hack, the fact that it may have only been 47,000 contractors and employees, which was bad enough, but all of the contract details, all of the email information, all of the private conversations, which played itself out again in the DNC hack and the Podesta hack, I mean, these are devastating because there's no place to hide with these kinds of things. So those are state-sponsored hackers. Then you have the for-profit hackers, Target, Home Depot, Sally's Beauty Supply, Michael's Stores, the list goes on and on, all of the hotel chains, those folks. The cause hackers, some people think that North Korea was a cause with them because of the movie, or Ashley Madison, which was the cheating website where 37 million people were exposed and you had suicides. Divorce lawyers had a party after that happened. And then you have the Because I Can hackers, which also are lovingly referred to by the president as the 400-pound hacker in the basement of his mother's house in New Jersey. But the Because I Can hackers, oftentimes young people, they're part of a hacking community. Each one is trying to outdo the other. Some of us remember the movie War Games where Matthew Broderick hacked into a Defense Department computer system that ultimately started the clock for World War III. I mean, these kind of crazy things can happen. Those are the hackers that are out there. Wow. Okay. Now, with the revelations of WikiLeaks, and we've talked about this for a long time, and I'm not sure how much, perhaps what kind of comment you might have on this, but I'm very concerned about the ability of car systems to be hacked. I truly believe, based on everything I was able to, on the individuals I've spoken with about Michael Hastings, the tragic car accident that he was involved in, I believe that there's really a good possibility that that was an assassination. That's my belief, okay? The book, The Operators, and as a matter of fact, pages 65 and 66, he goes into the death threats that he got as he published the book. Your thoughts on something like that, on the ability to hack a vehicle? Oh, no. We have an event every year in Scottsdale this coming year, or this year it's actually going to be near Las Vegas, called the Privacy Exchange. And last year, two of the prime speakers were the guys that hacked into the Jeep. And incidentally, the show they gave was really better than the best Las Vegas show I've ever seen. They were hysterical, but they were terrifying in the way they laid it out. Currently, they're working now for Uber. But they did it, and they showed how they could speed a car up, slow it down, turn up and down the radio, turn on and off the air conditioning. They could get into the equivalent of the, now for GM cars, the OnStar system, where they could literally say, we've taken control of your car, and you're going to drive to an ATM, and we're going to be watching you, and if you don't, we're going to drive the car off the road. Now, the automakers have rushed 
to become far more secure and to make their systems more hack-proof. And there are some that say that you literally have to go through a specific port and it literally has to be done when the car is in service in order to be able to gain access. It depends upon the vehicle. But they are, again, think of them as the equivalent of an Internet of Things device. So everything that has anything to do with a digital experience that is connected or interconnected is susceptible to being hacked by somebody. And the hackers are very sophisticated, creative, and persistent. And, you know, therefore, we really have to work a heck of a lot harder in this country. And it's got to be a cooperative effort. It's got to be government, business, media, and consumers. We're all in this together. It literally takes, because hacking knows no borders, it takes a global community to focus on cybersecurity. Mr. Levin, if I can kind of switch gears here. We've got about 10, 11 minutes left before the end of the segment. I want to talk to you about the electronic health care records that they're trying to implement and the move towards a cashless society. If you want to start, what's your opinions on the electronic health records and the move to computerize all health care records? Do you see any dangers with that? Oh, yes. And, you know, in the beginning, the whole theory behind electronic health records was so that more people could have access to your information to help you in a crisis get through it. The bad news is more people could get access to your information. And a significant percentage of our information is outsourced to different companies. And, you know, in the health care area now, you know, the theory behind regulation is you are your vendor. And you better treat your vendor as if it was your employee because the regulators and the class action lawsuit attorneys sure would, will. And, you know, in the health care, a lot of people, you know, their definition of identity theft is my credit card got compromised. Someone got into my bank account through my debit card. Or somebody opened accounts in my name. But identity theft has morphed into so much more than that and so many scarier things than that. For instance, medical identity theft. That's when people get access to your information and they use it for the purpose of getting medical treatment, having examinations, getting prescriptions. And what folks don't understand is that when that occurs, their information gets commingled with your information and they are also protected by privacy regulations as well. But here are some of the scary ramifications. You're on a stretcher outside an emergency room. There's been an accident. You fainted. You're injured. And you're being given a blood transfusion, except it's the wrong blood type because the hacker or their customer, their information got commingled with yours. Or you're trying to get pre-certified for a procedure and you're told you can't because you already had the procedure, except you know you didn't. Or you're violently allergic to certain kinds of medication and yet suddenly you're being treated with that medication because the information about your allergies has disappeared and been replaced by new information of perhaps other allergies by the person who stole or bought the information that was stolen from you that gave them access to the medical system. So 
It's an issue. And I will tell you something. A lot of medical facilities and medical providers, they've got a long way to go. And you know that there has been this addiction to Social Security numbers. And, you know, when you go to your doctor and they say, give us your Social Security number, you don't have to. You can say, hey, by the way, my insurance company has my Social Security number, and you have my insurance information. Or I can't get out of your office without giving you my credit card anyway. And I had a doctor once say to me, well, we need it in the event you die. I said, I tell you what, call my wife if I'm dead. Call my lawyer. They will have my Social Security number. I don't need to give it to you. But Social Security numbers are out there. You want to talk about those of us that are over the age of 65? Your Medicare card. The government of the United States, in its infinite wisdom, made your Medicare number, your Social Security number, and a letter. Now, that's quite a masking device. Now, you know, a law was passed that we are phasing out of Social Security numbers on our Medicare cards. But one word of advice for anyone over 65 who has a card that's listening and watching is that take your Medicare card, and unless you're specifically going that day to a medical provider where you need it, and in most cases you don't, make a copy of it, redact most of the numbers, so there's one or two numbers so they can see it's a real Medicare card, that's your number, and on the back write an emergency contact number so that in the event you have fainted, they have somebody they can call and they can get your Medicare number from. Okay. Good piece of advice. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, folks, did, and you know did you when, you go in the, when you go into the doctor's office, um, at the beginning of the year, uh, at least with the doctors around here, they give you a new, um, like when you first walk in, they give you a form to fill out and they ask for your information, your name. So you're saying is you don't have to put the Social Security information on there. Um, now you, and the truth of the matter is that I've been in a lot of situations. First of all, I've had a lot of doctors where they don't even ask me. I don't put it in. Nobody says a word. Occasionally, someone will say something, and I'll say, I'm not giving you my, I'll give you anything else you want, but I'm not going to give you my Social Security number. Now, more and more medical facilities are now moving to where they do a scan of your palm, and it has to do with your veins. I mean, it's fascinating. The biometric stuff they're doing now is great. But I issued, I did a warning recently. I did a, I did a story with a television station here in, in New York. And, you know, when you make the peace sign and you take a picture of it, and uh, the, the, a lot of the digital cameras now and the cameras on uh, smartphones have high res. They can literally take that picture, if you do it with high res, blow it up, and, and using glue and certain kinds of paper, make a copy of it. And they can duplicate it and then use that to unlock uh, devices where you need your fingerprint to unlock them. So again, that you know, incredibly creative. Wow! Yeah. I, I, <laughs> seriously, uh, gun safes. You know, the the, the quick the the gun. Sure. Uh, so, so wait a minute. Just so I understand this, I, I don't even want to do it. Put your hand. <laughs> just showing my hand. <laughs> uh, yeah. You can do the backward piece sign, you see, as opposed to the... So, so they can... Okay, so... Okay, so with the high-resolution pictures, they can pick up the details of your hand so, so well they can gather your fingerprints from that. Not, not only that, but I'll tell you something interesting. I was at a gathering recently, and somebody from the Boy Scouts of America came up to me and said, we are seriously reflecting upon whether or not we need to change the sign that we make when we do our pledge, because there are so many parents in a room 
taking pictures that on on digital cameras that have high res capability and the the HDR is on that uh, we're worried that our children could end up having their fingerprints exposed to hackers and we're seriously thinking about making a change or doing a backward version of the uh, of the sign so I mean it's just it shows you the concern is now starting to spread about this kind of stuff man this is incredible our guest uh, Adam Levin his book swiped you, folks you've got to get a copy of this book if you don't have a copy of this book get one it, it's an invaluable tool um, I, I'm a big believer in cybersecurity I'm also a victim um, I, hey I'm embarrassed to say you know I was a victim of uh, of uh, credit card well debit card credit card theft and uh, and again to pick up the pieces from that it, it's it's it, it's a huge hassle and and what mr. Levin just said about the the healthcare aspect uh, my goodness yeah you can't afford not to have a copy of this book and follow his advice adam com. we got about three minutes left of uh, of the show this has been fascinating any words of wisdom pieces other pieces of advice you'd like to give our our uh, our listeners here uh, before before we cut you loose absolutely and and this really relates to the third m which is how do you manage the damage because you and I talked about you know what you went through with it and when you become victims of even more exotic forms of identity theft which is medical or child identity theft where a child may not know for 17 or 18 years that he or she is a victim and sometimes the perpetrator is their parent or their sibling as a matter of fact a significant percentage of reported identity theft occurs within the family then you have criminal identity theft where you're pulled over for a busted taillight suddenly guys with guns surround your car and you're hauled off because there were warrants for your arrest a lot of people don't realize that there are many services available to them through institutions with whom they have relationships their insurance companies, uh, many of uh, credit unions, smaller banks, big banks like to sell monitoring products and charge money for it, uh, but many smaller financial institutions, as well as HR departments where you work through employee benefits programs, have a program available to get you through an identity theft incident with professionals who do the work, make the phone calls, write the letters, put you on monitoring, do all sorts of things like that. So you need to ask your insurance agent, ask your bank services or your financial services rep, ask the HR department where you work, do you have a program that can help me if I have an identity-related problem? Am I in it already? What do I need to get in it? Is it free or does it cost? You'll be surprised that with many institutions, as a perk of your relationship, as a customer acquisition and retention tool, they offer these programs for free or at a significant discount. But many times they're just terrible at educating you as to the fact that these programs exist for you. So ask the question. Don't be afraid. You know the old line, you don't ask, you don't get? You need to ask because you may be very pleasantly surprised. Fantastic. Good advice. Thank you so much. Adam Levin, our guest, wow. An incredible, incredible hour. Thank you so very much for th- thanks for writing the book as I as I thanked you before, uh, but thank you for your appearance tonight because it's been it's been educational, informational, and yeah, a little bit uh, a little bit scary. But uh, thank scary, you. Scary, you know. But um, 
Again, thank you so much for inviting me, and thank you so much for your very kind words. Well, they're well-deserved. God bless you, my friend. Until next time, and we do hope you'll uh, join us again uh, sometime. Um, for sure. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Folks, Adam Levin. Adam Levin from uh, AdamLevin.com. And you've seen him on Fox News and, and CBS. and I mean, he's everywhere. He's, he writes a column, uh, uh, numerous columns, actually. His book, Swiped. I, I love it. Uh uh, of course, after the fact, Joe. After the fact, and, yeah. and you remembered what happened to me, right? Yeah, yeah. Was it? Was it? Was it, I, I was not I was. I was unhappy. <laughs> well, that's uh that's a day to day thing. That's a, that's my default setting. Right? But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Coming up next, uh, we have a guest that we haven't had on in quite a while. Richard Gage from Architects and Engineers for Nine Eleven Truth. Um, he is the the founder of that organization, and I think he hasn't been on since twenty thirteen. No, we he was on. In, I mean, he, yeah, 2012. 2012, 2013. Yeah. He came on a few times back then, uh, but we're going to hear from him next. And then after that, we have, uh, a former INS agent by the name of Michael Cutler. And I got a chance to speak with him off air earlier. He's going to be, um, full of information when he comes on. So Richard Gage from Architects and Engineers, AE911truth.org is the website. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Greenovative. No, thank you, sir. HagmanReport.com. This was awesome. The link to Greenovative. What Greenovative is, it's a small company in Florida. They created something called the GMAG Power Cell. It produces electricity by adding salt water to this unit that recharges rechargeable batteries. It's the coolest thing you'll ever see in your life. It's really neat. Really a, a super device. All right. You need just two teaspoons of ordinary table salt, a little water, but a bang, you're charging your rechargeable batteries. Super GMAG chargeable is affordable. It's lightweight, weighs about 8 ounces. It's durable. It's EMP proof. And it's environmentally friendly. Yeah, that it is. It'll provide safe and convenient power for recharging uh, six AA batteries off the grid. When other power sources aren't available anywhere, anytime, in any weather, day or night, go to greenovative.com. That's greenovative.com. Perhaps you're a business out there, a small business. Would you like to extend the reach of your business? I bet you would. Would you like to, to have the same opportunities as companies such as Omaha Steaks, and Pro Flowers, and Casper Mattress, and some of the bigger companies out there? Would you like to have that same power? Advertise on our program. Go to HagmanAndHagman.com or send an email to opportunities at HagmanAndHagman.com. If you go to HagmanReport.com and HagmanAndHagman.com, there's a link where you can, you can, you can, it's a big red box. You'll see it. You'll see it. Click on that link and go ahead and read the benefits what we have created for you. I think it's, I think it's a fabulous opportunity.
For investors, timberland has become the symbol of safety. Global tropical timber demand continues to surge as the world's population increases. The need for managed, sustainable timber production forests has never been greater. When stock markets crash, trees keep growing. Direct ownership of fully managed tropical timberland acreage is now available to accredited investors. Prime, valuable hardwood groves close to the beautiful Costa Rican border generate and maintain superior long-term wealth. Consider visiting our forest plantations. Qualified accredited investors should go to PreciousTimberProfits.com or dial 855-888-6288 for more information. Call 855-888-6288 or visit PreciousTimberProfits.com. This announcement does not constitute either an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase. Offering made by prospectus only. 855-888-6288, PreciousTimberProfits.com, PreciousTimberProfits.com. through this minefield of current events together. So much going on, so many headlines. You know, the world changed on 9-11. And, uh, Joe, Eric's, Eric's whispering to you. I don't think he can, I don't think No, he really came through. He came through. He's, he's wearing a headset. Just the Oh, really? So, wait a minute. The people can't hear what you're saying right now? Now they can hear. Now they can hear. Okay, so, so, just so people know that I wasn't hearing a voice in my head. <laughs> um, you know, so much has changed, uh, because of 9-11. And, uh, one of the, one of the very first people that got my attention, me personally, and I'm, I, look, I've been an investigator for three decades, and I'm a hard sell on things. And it wasn't until really, uh, Richard Gage from Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. Um, it wasn't until he brought up certain things that I started paying attention, and then my world changed. My paradigm changed. That's our that's our guest coming up here in about one minute. Before we bring him on, I want to mention, if you are looking for alternatives in communication, as you well should be, Satellite, uh, the satellitephonestore.com. The reason I hesitated there is, uh, well, you know what? The satellite phone that we have here, this Iridium 955 phone, this is the best communication device we have. My wife and I have each have one. And when we are in different locations and the cell service is down, this is a lifesaver. And you know what, folks? It is much less expensive than you would, you would ever begin to imagine. Contact Eric Tallman, my good friend Eric Tallman at satellitephonestore.com, satellitephonestore.com. I'm looking here for the phone number. It is 877-943-6383. That's 877-943-6383, Satellite Phone Store. These phones, the rival and, and, and look, if you've got a, a phone plan, a cell phone plan, the satellite phones have come down in prices as well as the plans. These are, 
you can't you cannot find a better way of communicating than the satellite phones. Now, obviously, you have to be within the uh, line of sight of a satellite or a line of uh, you can't be blocked by uh, uh, buildings or trees. But having said that, these are never fail. Satellitephonestore.com. That's satellitephonestore.com. Iridium nine five 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 is my personal favorite. My wife has one. I've got one, and we use it, and it's tremendous. Satellitephonestore.com. Joe. Our guest now in this hour is Richard Gage for Architects and Engineers for nine eleven Truth. That's AE911truth.org. That's the website. Uh, Mr. Gage, it's great to have you back on the program. Well, thank you so much, guys. It's awesome to be with you. Yeah, it's been a while since we, we've talked. Uh, and I know it's been a while since you've been on the show. Uh, I think what would be best to do is just to approach us like you've never been on before. And we'll, we'll lay out the, <laughs> the case and, and we'll go from there. Yeah, who who well, you are bet. you? <laughs> who the heck are you? I, no, uh, I'm, and I know I'm a normal architect. <laughs> you, you know, I, we, we we got we got emails uh, uh, from people before John had uh, arranged for your appearance, uh, saying, "Man, you've got to get Richard Gage back on." And then we got emails this week from people saying uh, it's the first time they've been introduced uh, to you. And just amazed at uh, at what you've done in terms of getting the truth out about nine about what happened on nine eleven. But but uh, yeah, t- tell us a little bit about your background and and um, how you kind of came into this nine eleven situation. You bet. Um, I've been an architect for almost thirty years, and uh, ten years ago, I was just shocked. Uh, to learn, first of all, that there was a third tower uh, that collapsed on 9-11. And I'm going, what are you talking about? I would have heard about this. Uh, so I'm looking forward to sharing with your listeners, guys, this uh, this third tower. But I, I, uh, I, I, my life turned upside down because not only was there a third tower, but there's all this evidence for the two Twin Towers that um, I and most every architect I've talked to didn't know anything about. Uh, it's, it's as if we live in a alternate reality and, and the news we're getting and the information from the American Institute of Architects and from our government is, is all filtered through this uh, lens that changes everything uh, and 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 that's what's shocking so i i have spent the last 10 years uh, educating architects and engineers and others throughout the world 40 countries now uh, 90 american cities presentations from 100 to 4000 people uh last week in uh, in uh, detroit um this is um really growing rapidly the awareness of the truth about what really happened on 9-11 and with the 2800 architects and engineers now who have signed the petition at ae911truth.org they are calling for a new investigation based on this evidence for explosive controlled demolition Uh, we were told that airplanes hit the towers and uh, of course, uh, we, they did, uh, and that there's a large explosion of jet fuel, and that uh, the combination of these fires and impacts caused their collapse. 
Well, it's a very different reality when you look at the rest of the evidence that we didn't know about. It's a very different reality when you discover what most architects and engineers have, have never even heard of this third worst structural failure in modern history, World Trade Center Building 7, which is a 47-story skyscraper, and easily the tallest building in most of our states. It, in the afternoon of 9-11 at 5.20, it drops like a rock after witnesses hear explosions. This building drops like a rock straight down, uniformly, suddenly, symmetrically, into its own footprint. Uh, and, and this happens in seven seconds. That's free fall acceleration as fast as a bowling ball falling out of the sky. So that means no resistance was provided by any of the 80 columns, 40,000 tons of structural steel framing in the system gave absolutely no resistance for this building's collapse, at least a, a third of its fall. That means those columns must have been removed uh, and that can only be done by explosives. And there are witnesses, lots of them, that hear such explosions. And there's evidence of incendiaries. Explos explosives work by means of force. Um, incendiaries work by means of heat. And there's evidence of incendiaries in the pile of all three buildings, three towers, uh, in found by... Uh, uh, the U.S. Geological Survey uh, by the uh, FEMA themselves in the building performance assessment report that they created for the collapse of Building 7 in May of 2002. They actually have an Appendix C in there, which is a metallurgical examination of the two pieces of steel that they saved from Building 7 the rest of which was sent to China for recycling before investigators could get their hands on it to find out how this building collapsed. A forensic investigation is required in, in, in these kinds of uh, building failures, even of much less stature than 47 stories. So I was shocked to learn all this, as are the architects in the con conventions that we go to every year, uh, one or two or three or four conventions, and we talk to hundreds and hundreds of architects, and we're just shocked to learn that most of them know nothing about this building, and when we point it out to them on the video, and there's about 11 videos of the collapse of this skyscraper, and they, we point it out to them, and we say, do you, do you see this? What, what, what are you looking at? What's happening to this building? And they all go, well, well it looks like a controlled demolition to me, because, you know, we've all seen it on TV. The old hotels in Las Vegas, they come down just like that, free fall, symmetrically, uh, very, very fast, very suddenly. We go, well, yeah, we think so too. But did you know that NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, uh, an agency under the Commerce Department who was, for some reason, put in charge of this investigation. Um, they don't investigate building failures uh, typically at all. Um, but 
they they were tasked by Congress to explain all three collapses to the American people, and they explained this one that it came down by normal office fires. Now, no plane hit Building Seven, and so it's a great case study because it doesn't have the the baggage of having been hit by a plane. It doesn't have the baggage or emotional uh, baggage and trauma of uh, people dying in the building because it was evacuated when the after the planes hit the towers this building seven was evacuated and then we've got these witnesses uh, on our on our on our DVD that we produced uh, called 9/11 explosive evidence experts speak out it's free on YouTube and you can see this building coming down so fast and and we go well yeah I mean does this make sense to you and based on that conversation the architects go no that doesn't make sense this needs to be investigated so they end up signing our petition which is why we have thousands of architects and engineers uh, now calling for a new investigation not only this third tower but the other two as well yeah and you know one of the, the interesting things about Building 7, uh, as you pointed out, there was no plane that hit the building. And then um, another interesting fact is on 9-11, it was the BBC that announced that Building 7 had collapsed about 20 minutes before yes. it actually did. And for a building that wasn't on fire, um, you know, there was no major structural damage. To say that that building uh, was going to collapse or had already collapsed, and then for it to happen... Um, when the building looked completely it's, intact, it, it just it's pretty amazing. A, a larger narrative. Oh, yeah, it, it sure does. Uh, there were a few small scattered fires in this building, and in the NIST report, they exaggerated these into, you know, the building engulfed in fire, but there's not one photo or video. Uh, there are a lot of photos and videos, but there's not one that shows uh, engulfing fires. You know, there's like, you know, five fires all together. You know, fire only burns in, in a given area 20 minutes or so. That's all the fuel there is in an office building. It moves on looking for fresh new fuel sources. So, uh, you know, a building that falls due to fire, it, it's going to, uh, and never have we had a steel frame high rise collapse due to fire, but say in a wood frame building, it's going to fall over in stages. Uh, it, it collapses asymmetrically. Uh, and not straight down through the path of greatest resistance, the intact, cold, hard steel uh, below uh, at freefall acceleration. Symmetrically, it is, this does not ever happen in any building, much less a, a skyscraper like this. So it makes no sense. And the BBC apologized for pre-announcing the collapse, the unprecedented collapse of a high-rise by fire, uh, they say, uh, well, the confusing events of the day. Well, what, does this make them psychic? We, we're just, of course, not buying it. CNN announced, actually, the collapse uh, that morning at 11.07. Uh, uh, they said uh, that at 10.45, a, a, a firefighter came by and said a 50-story building collapsed, uh, and they described the canyons of smoke and everything, but nothing like that had happened. Uh, the, the Twin Towers, of course, collapsed, but there's no other building that it, that collapsed. Uh, there was some damage to surrounding buildings by when the Twin Towers uh, came down, uh, but 
none of them uh, collapsed, and certainly uh, there's nothing more than 10 stories. Well, the the Marriott building might have been uh, 20 stories, but a 47- or 50-story building, no. So this got this got pre-announced then too, and that led to some speculation on the part of of uh, the 9/11 research community, suggesting that uh, perhaps it was meant to come down at that time, 10:45, because had it come down, the twin towers had just collapsed, uh, creating a massive series of smoke clouds in lower Manhattan, which would have obscured the uh, collapse of Building 7. But it didn't go off, leading some to suspect that it was a dud, because there were construction workers in the late afternoon uh, coming out of Building 7, walking past a CNN camera and hearing an explosion over their shoulder and then looking back into the Building 7 and then looking straight into the CNN camera and saying, did you hear that? Uh, The building's about to blow up, flame and debris coming down. We're moving it back because the building is about to blow up. They actually say this. Uh, be, and the, the building had, you know, fires weren't even visible till about noon. And even after that, they're, they're few, small, and scattered and have never brought down the high rise. So apparently there are people who knew. Yeah. And, and you know, that's a and, – and I believe with the news organizations announcing the collapse, they there was some sort of, um, you know, talking points handed down. And if it was supposed to happen earlier or versus when it did happen, either way, I think there uh, – and, and what would be the reason for that? Uh, from your guys' investigation, have you looked into what was so special about Building 7? I know it was the you know uh, the headquarters and there was a lot of government uh, and government agencies who were uh, tenants in that building. Uh, what else was going on with Building 7? Yeah. Uh, the 23rd floor was a, a, a kind of a reinforced bunker to run the city in, in the event of a massive emergency, such as what happened. But they abandoned that uh, bunker uh, and uh, uh, leading some to suspect that it may have been the central headquarters for the event because it had a bird's eye view of what happened at the Twin Towers. Uh, we don't know about that. Um, we do know that the CIA, the IRS, the Department of Defense, the Securities and Exchange Commission all had major offices in that building. The Securities and Exchange Commission lost thousands of files related to hundreds of high-profile cases like WorldCom and Enron, the cases which were severely compromised uh, as a result of uh, this um, the, 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 the complete catastrophic damage to the building. Uh, so that leads others to suspect a motive, but um, I don't I don't speculate uh, about motive. Uh, the architects and engineers are focused on the forensic evidence and the eyewitness and video testimony that clearly shows that the uh, the building uh, was uh, demolished. The the evidence for incendiaries is extraordinary. The U.S. Geological Survey finds in all the World Trade Center dust samples previously molten iron microspheres, the diameter of a human hair, uh, 
these uh, are, are produced in, in at temperatures that melt iron, uh, such as 2,800 degrees minimum. So there's up to 10 tons of this material in the World Trade Center samples. Uh, you can tell by extrapolation. Uh, some in some samples they find six percent of the dust is these previously molten iron microspheres, which they can't explain and and don't even attempt to. But R. J. Lee, an environmental consultant, clearly identifies them as having been created during the event. Well. Uh, that the fires are only 500 degrees, probably. NIST claims 1,800 degrees without any evidence. But we're talking 2,800 degrees, twice those temperatures almost. Uh, two to four times those temperatures uh, required to melt steel. So where did that temperature come from? Where did the molten iron come from, the, which is elemental iron, not steel, but elemental iron? Well, this is the byproduct of thermite. Thermite is an incendiary used by the military to cut through steel like a hot knife through butter. So uh, that's the, the, having the evidence of the, which produces, by the way, molten iron as its byproduct at, at 4,000 degrees. So this is not only an explanation, uh, but there's other evidence to support this found by FEMA and documented in this metallurgical report, uh, Appendix C in their final report. This is melted steel, hot sulfur corrosion attack on the steel. Uh, and so this is uh, extraordinary uh, evidence. Uh, there's no explanation or guess as to where the sulfur came from. And so it, it, sulfur is added to thermite, though, to become thermate, much more effective at cutting through steel. Uh, so this has not been explained, but there's the evidence, well documented by FEMA in this report. But when NIST took over the investigation uh, from FEMA, they abandoned this evidence, uh, this uh, metallurgical examination, and, and, and it's completely eliminated now in the final report by NIST. You know, I'm I'm listening to this explanation, and and it's this is fascinating. I I guess my question here, um, why aren't people? I would suspect why aren't people just screaming about this from the rooftops? I know that there's a certain segment that are, but it's a minority. Um, or Geraldo Rivera, uh, uh, broached the topic of Building Seven, dropped it. It's it's almost as if. 9/11, the real, the, the you know, the, the true events. No one really cares anymore, or no one is trying to get to the truth anymore. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just my. Uh, uh, I don't want to seem like I'm whining here, but my goodness, you you've got this evidence that you're talking about this material, the temperatures, the way the built buildings fell. It just seems to me that that. Uh, the evidence is overwhelming that obviously we're not getting the true story and I just it's frustrating when I hear it's frustrating when I hear this and we're not getting the, the truth out there. I don't know, are you still there, sir? I think we lost him. Yeah. We'll get him Isn't back. Isn't that convenient, right? 
Yeah, really. Uh, but no, this is a, a very interesting topic of discussion. And again, the website is ae911truth.org. Yeah. Um, AE911truth.org. It's architects and engineers for 9/11 Truth. It's an organization that's been around for a long time, and um, they have a place on their website for architects and engineers to sign a petition, as well as others, uh, regular people, uh, people who are not architects and engineers, to sign uh, sign up on their website. And they have a lot of interesting DVDs. And go to their website. They have all kinds of links and content, from videos to articles. And it's um, there's a lot of information here. Yeah. And um, when we get him back, we will we got we're coming up on a break here in a, in a few minutes. All right. What's that, Eric? Hi guys. Right. Sorry about that. There all we right. go. Wow. We were just talking about your website and yeah. where people can go to sign the petitions that are on there and check out some of the content that you have on there. We got about uh, two minutes before the break. Um, if you can tell our audience what they can do to to help you in your mission. Oh, you bet. Um, our mission uh, is, is focused on the academic and professional communities right now. Uh, we're, we're heading to Orlando to the American Institute of Architects, and uh, we, we have a resolution that's signed by uh, 70 AIA members, which is an extraordinary number of, of uh, uh, extraordinary support for a new investigation, calling upon the American Institute of Architects to call for a new investigation of Building 7. Uh, so we do need support uh, heading there. There's a donate button, of course, on our website uh, for that effort and uh, other efforts. But I encourage everybody to get informed by looking at this DVD or video, which is free on YouTube. At um, it's called 9/11 Explosive Evidence. Experts speak out. All right. Excellent. Yeah, you know it's. And again, my, my question before we dropped off is, uh, I, I'm discouraged in a sense that that people aren't outraged and, and stomping and yelling for investigations and. Just you know, not uh, well ignoring the evidence and, and and not demanding answers, because you bring forth compelling evidence that obviously it nine eleven did not happen the way the government stated it did. Um, yeah, well, you know. not only do are people unaware of this evidence in this third tower, but when they are confronted with the possibility that they may have been lied to by their government. Uh, that brings up a whole set of psychological issues. People do not, in, on large masses, do not really want to tackle this problem. And it is a huge problem. We'll get into that in the second half uh, of the show, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, it is, it's very difficult. It's like having your world turned upside down. Inside out, it's like uh, uh, it's it's very disturbing for a lot of people to become aware of not just nine eleven issues, of course, but many of the other issues brought up on your courageous show. Folks, we're coming up against the our break. Richard Gage is our guest. He's going to be with us till the end of the hour. Architects and engineers for nine eleven truth. That's ae nine one one truth dot org. When we come back, we're going to continue to talk with Mr. Gage about um, the. NIST, what's wrong with the NIST model? Um, do, do, do us a favor, too, Joe. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I did. Do us a favor, and please tell others about this broadcast, this segment with Richard Gage. Please, we need the word. I know, I know. Spread the word about this. And right back.
Visit HagmanReport.com for the news and articles that matter most. Stay tuned. We will be right back. Shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. Folks, I'm going to direct your attention to masterpreps.com, masterpreps.com. Wow. Masterpreps.com, the sponsor of our show, masterpreps.com. That's masterpreps.com. Take a visit there. High-quality items, made-in-America items. I mean, anything, everything you possibly want from cooking utensils, cooking frying pans. I mean, it is, it'll blow you away. Absolutely, Erickson. It's insane. I mean, wow. Look at the products. Folks, visit masterpreps.com. Again, welcome to the Hagman and the Hagman Report family. Masterpreps.com. I mean, wow, it's insane. Masterpreps.com. Are you ready for what comes next? From all of us at Training Post in the Woods. We pray you have a healthy, safe, and prosperous 2017. And we would like to thank all of you for welcoming us to the Hagman and Hagman family. You're all a very wonderful and special group of people. Because we believe it is so important for you to work and acquire good health this year, we're going to do something that we've never done before as a thank you to you for your support. We're going to make something available that we believe everyone needs. During the month of January, anyone who invests in their health by purchasing either our American Heritage Remedies Kit, our Survivalist Natural Remedies Kit, or $200 in individual remedies of your choice, we're going to give to you our crisis remedy just in case for free. Your health must be a part of your preparation plan. We're here to help you with that journey. May God bless y'all, and may God bless America. Happy New Year! Hello, everyone. This is Joe Charles, the guy whose voice is heard announcing for the Hagman and Hagman Report right here on YouTube and across the Global Star Radio Network. There have been many people wondering whose music is being played during those breaks. Well, you guessed it. And we're very pleased to announce that all that music and 11 brand new songs from the CD New Jerusalem is set for release on April 10th for download on iTunes. That means you can help support my ministry and be blessed by this awesome, inspiring recording. I have been fortunate to work with some phenomenal musicians from around the world that helped us put this recording together in the studio. Simply go to joecharlesmusic.com and click on the iTunes link. Or, if you'd rather have a CD, we'll send one right out to you. Just leave me your email and we'll get right back to you. And thanks to Doug and Joe Hagman for making this all possible. God bless. Report.com. That's where to go for show information, and news information analysis, uh, original content, and information about uh, shows or about uh, topics like this. This is so important, I believe, that we look, we, folks, please do us a favor. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Even if you're listening to this on Blog Talk Radio, on Global Star Radio, Regardless of the platform that you're using, subscribe to our YouTube channel. That does provide us a level of insulation and it elevates us a, a, a bit. Um, we are undergoing, obviously, censorship in a number of different ways. You, you've heard, we've talked about it. 
just please do that. Um, and support our sponsors as well, including Pred Defense. You know, many people today, even those in uniform, have been using shotguns. I mean, many people use shotguns for defense. Things that go bump in the night. No one disputes the incredible firepower of the shotgun or the need for one. However, what can be disputed is that most are not proficient in performing an emergency reload. Simply put, what is the fastest way to get that that empty chamber filled with a fresh shell? Well, people have been trained on how to reload from a side saddle, but that takes precious time. Usually end up taking your eyes off the target and focusing on the shell. Plus, you need fine motor skills for this task. We know that when your adrenaline is pumping, we lose our fine motor skills. So you need a way to rapidly get that fresh shell into the chamber using gross motor skills. You have to ask yourself, if your adrenaline is, adrenaline is pumping, can you truly get that fresh shell into the chamber proficiently? That's an important question. Folks, I would encourage you to take a look at preddefense.com. That is pred, P-R-E-D, defense.com, preddefense.com. They have a solution, a patented solution, that I think everyone will appreciate. If you just go to preddefense.com, if you own a shotgun, self-defense, whatever, uniform, civilian, preddefense.com. That is P-R-E-D, defense.com. Richard Gage is our Richard Gage is our guest from Architects and Engineers for 9/11 Truth AE 911truth.org um and he'll be with us till the end of this hour. Um Mr. Gage, if we could talk a little bit about the the government's explanation of what happened to building 7, uh the NIST model. Uh what can you tell us about what what's wrong with their their model of of how this building collapsed? Well, building 7 Collapses, as we mentioned, straight down uniformly, symmetrically at free fall speed. This theory is that it came down by normal office fires. <laughs> and this is, I'm just laughing because this has never happened before in history, and it comes down in the exact manner of a classic controlled demolition, and, but NIST never even examined the possibility that, uh, that, that, uh, of, of control of controlled demolition and and even when it's so it's it's not just from the surface of it uh from the very beginning it was not anywhere near an objective assessment of what really happened then they used this elaborate um com- set of computer animations and uh to justify their theory that these long span beams on floor above floor 12 uh, heated up in a fire that wasn't even there, according to the videos and photos, pushing a girder off of its seat sideways on this column 79. Well, it couldn't have happened because this girder is, uh, according to the shop drawings, has shear studs tying it to the concrete slab above. It could not have slid anywhere. Anyway, they suggest that the entire interior of the building eventually, in in only 15 seconds, uh, caved in on itself without telegraphing through any perimeter structural steel sections uh, developing uh, 
uh, without massive deformations, breaking of granite panels and windows, etc. But nevertheless, was caved out on the inside, and then uh, in the last seven seconds, the building drops on the outside. None of that could be true for a whole variety of reasons, some of which we just touched on. And so when architects see this evidence, they're immediately uh, drawn to the evidence, uh, well, what about the Twin Towers? Because if, if Building 7 was uh, intentionally demolished uh, in the middle of downtown, downtown Manhattan without a permit, right, on 9-11, then we must have had something going on that relates to the Twin Towers as well. So that's the obvious question that comes up. So we start looking at the evidence of the Twin Towers, and we're just shocked to find all the evidence that is not revealed by the American Society of Civil Engineers to its members, uh, by the American Institute of Architects to its members, by the government to its people, and uh, by uh, current academic institutions to their students, uh, so this, and the media to its uh, audience. Uh, this is uh, extraordinary because the, guess what? The towers fall almost at free fall acceleration, getting faster and faster, straight down to the path of what should have been the greatest resistance, the 100,000 tons of structural steel framework in each building collapsed as if it weren't even there. That's extraordinary in and of itself, the speed of the collapse. But then on top of that, you have laterally freely flying structural steel sections weighing four tons sent laterally in 600 yards, in, in, in 600 feet in every direction, such that most of the debris is well outside the perimeter. This isn't a gravitational collapse. Gravity works down. We should have seen the steel and 110 floors made of concrete stacked up in a gravitational collapse, basically a pancaking collapse. We should see a stack of pancakes. We don't see 110. We don't see 50. We don't see 10. We don't even see one floor, each of which was an acre in size. We don't see that. It's pulverized, this concrete, 190,000 tons of it in midair, massive dust plumes of pulverized concrete. That takes explosives, a massive explosions. And this concrete is pulverized to a fine powder, about 100 microns, like an ash, laid in a blanket across lower Manhattan, four inches thick. And in that dust, they not only find all the iron, previously molten iron microspheres that we discussed, which is evidence of incendiaries that are um, uh, evidence of the residue of ignited incendiaries. But we also have the evidence of unignited incendiaries in the form of about 10 tons of red-grade chips, about a sixteenth of an inch long. They look like paint. They thought they were paint. Uh, people call them paint. But a team of international scientists led by Niels Herrod in Copenhagen finds that this material um, is... is is a, a thermitic material, an energetic material, uh, because it ignites at 420 degrees centigrade, about eight or 900 Fahrenheit, and producing temperatures and molten iron spheres. The same molten iron spheres found but unexplained by 
the USGS and by R.J. Lee, an environmental consulting group. So this is uh, direct documentation of what and corroboration of what is already found and which can only be uh, thermitic materials, which when set uh, in the columns and beams in the material will cut through steel like a hot knife through. And there are patented devices which do exactly that, which with thermite uh, cutting through steel uh, very effectively, more expensively than typical charges like C4 and RDX, which use are put in shaped charges to bring down controlled demolitions. But those provide very loud bangs and bright flashes. This material uh, is is less uh, explosive, if you will, but there still are dozens and dozens and dozens of first responders attesting to explosions, seeing flashes of light. But it is much less of an audio and visual signature than would be made by these other explosives, which are more typically used on these types of jobs. So you can see why we have 2,800 architects and engineers demanding a new investigation. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now I'm just curious. Now I don't. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but uh, I, I, I'm curious as to what would it take uh, for what you just described. What would it take to coat uh, or plant the explosives, or uh, um, what's the process? Would they would they paint this material on the support structure, supporting structures, or would they? What's the process, or what would be the process? And wouldn't people have to know about this, or see it, or sense it, smell it beforehand? And wouldn't this take a lot of planning and, I mean, witnesses? It certainly would. It would take planning, um, but a, a team of a dozen operatives working inside the secrecy of the elevator shafts in the World Trade Center could get away with it if they had access uh and complicity with security. Uh, we certainly want an investigation of the security company, Stratasec and Securicom, uh, who had uh, the security contract up until the day of 9-11. Uh, we certainly want an investigation of the elevator company, who in the nine months prior to 9-11, uh, were engaged in the largest elevator modernization in the world, uh, a company, Ace Elevator, who had come out of nowhere to get these contracts, who had uh, unlimited access to the core columns and beams uh, in the World Trade Center towers through the elevator shafts, uh, who fled uh, after the planes hit the towers and before some of them, uh, which was quite a scandal, documented in USA Today, uh, the month after 9-11. Uh, this is uh, all uh, a, a focus of a, an investigation, which should have happened, but, but never did. Uh, we don't, we're not private investigators, criminal investigators. We certainly are skilled and able to, to do that, but that's that's where the investigation will probably yield uh, a whole lot of, of fruit. You know, we don't know why, how how such an operation, which is obviously larger than the World Trade Center. I mean, you have, you have air drills which sent our fighter jets north and south and uh, away from the, the vulnerable corridor, uh, leaving the Pentagon and, the, and Washington, D.C., uh, 
White House and Capitol Hill uh, undefended uh, by these spider jets, which were flown by pilots who were not skilled and who failed Cessna flying school. Uh, the whole thing doesn't make sense, uh, uh, actually, from beginning to end. Uh, and much of this is documented by others, including David Ray Griffin, who's now written 10 books on this subject, including 9-11 Commission, Omissions and Distortions, and 9-11, New Pearl Harbor. So these are excellent books on these topics that are uh, outside the World Trade Center which is the, the, the scope that eighteen nine eleven truth focuses on, um, Mr. Gage? I got a, a, a question going back to something you said at the beginning of this segment. Have you come across any examples, um, specifically in schools and universities, where they use the the NIST uh, model for nine eleven in the buildings as examples of um, of building collapsing uh, of building collapses? I guess my question is. Have you ever seen the 9-11 be used as an example or teaching tool based on the government story? Well, those who use it, who, th- those who teach about these building failures certainly use the government's official story and the various reports produced supporting it. Um, uh, they they unfortunately are not aware of the alternative theories other than what people have uh, uh, denigrated them with with uh, names such as conspiracy theories. For those who do not want to be called uh, or be associated with conspiracy theories or theorists. Uh, the the the, uh, the media and and the government has done a good job from the very onset to warn people about conspiracy theories and uh, we have an uphill climb when we talk to architects who you know just aren't comfortable dealing with challenging the government or being themselves called a conspiracy theorist. So our reports, uh, our, and there's been some peer-reviewed reports, there's the 55-page booklet uh, at beyondmisinformation.org, uh, which you can download for free, um, and our DVDs. There's no theory uh, here. It's, it's all evidence, scientific, forensic evidence, eyewitness testimony, video testimony, and professional uh, conclusions reached by researchers. So, uh, we do need our materials uh, covered in the universities, and that's why I've spoken at 50 universities all together. Um, It is still, though, a slow uphill climb. There's not enough of us uh, doing enough, and uh, we'd love to have more support. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, nine um, eleven is it's so long ago. Um, and, and you're right. <laughs> so how the media, I mean, well, no, I mean it, when it you look at like 2017, that happened in 2001. Yeah. Um, it, it's just it's been. We had just celebrated the 15 year anniversary. So and no, so, uh, Mark. The Mark. City, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Uh, and so much has happened. Uh, and there used to be a huge interest in. 
you know, the 9-11, and they, the, the media's marginalized it, and, you know, they, they label the truther movement as some kind of, you know, lumped it in there with conspiracy theorists. But um, I'm, I'm just blown away how more people uh, don't look back on this event. You know, especially when you're in that, when you're, when you're watching that in real time, and even two or three days after, I can see how the fog of, uh, and the severity of the event um, have a lot of people not thinking straight, but it's just, um, to see how two planes crashing into the top floors of, a, of the two biggest skyscrapers in this country, and then they three of the buildings fall from basically the bottom out. Well, you, if I can, if I can ask you, Mr. Gage, because you had mentioned um, at the beginning of the, uh, of the, of the uh, segment, as an engineer or architect, engineer, do you have any? sense or comment about the plane, the impacts of the planes relative to the collapse of the buildings? I, I know that's kind of a convoluted question, but um, in your mind, with your experience and your background, the plane hit the planes hitting the buildings, the, does that look right to you? Um, yeah, I, I, we, we've looked at that, and we believe that certainly planes did hit buildings. I understand that there's a number of people uh, out there suggesting that they did not, um, but there's more people suggesting that they did, but there's lots of questions about which planes they were. Yeah, there you go. Most 9-11 researchers believe uh, in in many of the witnesses uh, that these were not uh, civilian aircraft. They, they were not uh, uh, painted, according to most witnesses, like the airliners that were said to have been was, uh, uh, that owned them. Um, they were more like um, military aircraft, and uh, particularly uh, the way they make sudden swift adjustments prior to hitting their targets are more responsive like a fighter jet than uh, than a, a civilian aircraft and there's the work done by the pilots for 9-11 Truth uh, which uh, follow up on, well which lead the effort on this work and uh, I, I encourage people to to go to pilots for 9 truthorg for for that information, but others suggest that uh, well these were holograms. Well, uh, it, there, there's enough convincing evidence that a plane hit these buildings. Uh, this isn't a cookie cutter like shape. If you if you really look at NIST, did actually did a fairly decent job of analyzing the openings in the buildings, and you can see that what was taken out. Uh, the, the building didn't slice through steel. It pushed sections of prefabricated units, which are composed of three 14-inch square steel tube columns vertically by three spandrel panels of steel plates horizontally, uh, which were then bolted to each other in place. So the plane impact on these units only had to break four bolts at the top and bottom of each of these columns. Uh, and that's a lot less force than would be required to actually cut the steel. So I think that's real important for people uh, to, to remember, uh, well, to, to realize when they start questioning whether 
planes hit the buildings or not because they, these perfect cutty, cooker, cookie cutter shapes must have been made by explosives. Is, is one theory okay. out there? Well, and, and but again, your experience uh, in, in, with your background and, and experience. Uh, the and by the way, um, a member of our organization, JD from uh, our uh, from Hagman Report, uh, was was at Ground Zero. In fact, was at the Trade Center. Um, many of his pictures have been used throughout the. Uh, uh, he, he was he's a photographer and unbelievable number of pictures that he's taken of of Ground Zero in New York City. Um, and, and he wow. was there when the second plane hit. And I'd sure love no, to see those. Well, you know, yeah, he, um, as a matter of fact, um, and in fact, JD, uh, I'll, I'll speak with him tomorrow. Uh, you got, he's got hundreds, and hundreds and hundreds of pictures, um, and quite a story to tell. But he was right there and, uh, saw the second plane hit and, uh, was in that dust debris, that uh, cloud of dust debris, uh, debris of, uh, dust, but but anyway, um, what about the, and, and there's so many questions, so few answers. The molten steel, as an engineer, you're saying that the thermitic uh, properties could cause that molten steel or not? Well, first of all, there are probably. Well, certainly dozens and dozens and dozens of witnesses that saw the molten steel, as most of them called it, because they don't know what else to call it. It turns out not to be steel. It's molten iron. Uh, and, and the slag on the ends of these beams, uh, some of the meteorites have been tested. They're molten iron. Uh, which is different than steel. It's a major component of steel, of course. Um, but molten iron is the byproduct of thermite. Um, and thermite is, is this incendiary used for, for the last hundred years or so. You can get it on eBay. It's just iron uh, uh, oxide, which is rust and aluminum particles mixed three quarters to one quarter. And uh, it, it creates this massive uh, flurry of, of uh, molten iron at 4,000 degrees. And, and this is a scene, by the way, the, he called it molten steel. Leslie Robertson, uh, the, the structural engineer himself of the World Trade Center, uh, sees a river of steel flowing. And in our movie that I mentioned, 9-11 Explosive Evidence Experts Speak Out. You've got uh, at least uh, two dozen witnesses of this material. They can't explain it. It has no explanation. Jet fuel doesn't even burn hotter than desks or chairs. You know, it's a hydrocarbon. The manufacturer of jet fuel says it burns at 600 degrees Fahrenheit in open air. NIST claims 1,800-degree fires, but their own tests show maximum temperatures of five, six, seven hundred degrees. So, yet this material is seen by others. Uh, it's documented by NASA uh, thermal imaging uh, aircraft on the surface of the pile, 1,400 degrees Fahrenheit on the surface of all three piles, Building 7, and towers one and two, but there's no fire on the surface of these 
uh, pile. So what are they measuring? They're measuring radiant temperatures that reach the surface that at their source, deep down in the piles, must be much, much, much hotter. And indeed, uh, they document temperatures like 2,800 degrees Bechtel. Uh, others document 2,000 degree temperatures. Um, so there's, there's no source for such heat other than thermite, which is corroborated by the ignited and unignited evidence of thermite in the form of these molten iron microspheres and these red-gray chips. Uh, which we talked about earlier. Right. So and, and all the evidence supports uh, explosive demolition by means of incendiaries. And, and I've got to say, just to recount that question and your answer in that whole, what, what the, the whole picture you painted, that to me explains, uh, well, the method, certainly not the motive, but the method and even the means. It makes a lot of sense. And coming from you, your background, and the organization for which you represent, a lot of respect there, my friend. Wow. Hey, we reached the end yeah, of Thank time. you. Hmm. We've worked hard for that respect, and we don't want to lose it by speculating about things that we don't understand. We, we only tell what the eyewitness testimony, the forensic evidence, uh, the video testimony shows. Uh, and then, you know, when we're, when we make a speculation, we'll say, okay, well, it's possible that this was done in the guise of an elevator modernization. It certainly could have given them access. We certainly need an investigation by criminal investigators, but we're careful yeah. to say we don't know who's responsible for this, uh, but whoever is responsible for this, uh, is obviously well placed. Um, it, we obviously have grave concerns uh, about these well-placed individuals in our government and industry. We obviously have grave concerns uh, about their capability of pulling off uh, a massive operation like this and fooling uh, maybe 80% of the world, I, I think. Ten or twenty percent of, of of people are like like uh, you, uh, Doug and Joe, are are aware and educating your uh, listeners uh, to this. But the more people out there that can, you know, we drip on, you know, over time. The third time you hear this information, it really starts to cause questions, uh, you know, starting at the unconscious level, and then the conscious level, and then there are people are like me are more responsive when they hear it. Uh, you know, a, a, a second, a third time, and Mr. Gates, you know, the light bulb goes off. off. I don't mean to cut you off, but we've reached the end of our time. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Look forward to having you on the future. AE911truth.org is the website. You have a great evening. Thank, thank you so you. much. Thanks so much, Joe and Larry. I mean, Joe and Doug, thanks so much. <laughs> I, I answered to both. God bless. Again, that was Richard Gates for Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. My, Michael Cutler, coming up next. Stay with us. High net worth individuals have invested billions of dollars into coconuts for strong growth and solid long-term income. Yields could be as high as 18% or more per year. Capital appreciation and exceptional income for up to 60 long years would be an absolutely brilliant investment to pass on to future generations. Diversify wisely with direct ownership of fully managed coconuts on prime farmland close to the beautiful Costa Rican border. 
For more information, qualified accredited investors should go to ProfitsInCoconuts.com or phone 855-888-6288. That's 855-888-6288. This announcement does not constitute an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase. Offer made by prospectus only. 855-888-6288 or visit ProfitsInCoconuts.com. ProfitsInCoconuts.com. You may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood, a murder investigation based upon a true story by private investigator Douglas J. Hagman. Using the character Mark Stiles, Hagman takes you on a journey behind the scenes where the homicide becomes a secondary to an underworld of satanic ritual abuse, child abduction, and even mind-controlled experimentation. For five years, a brutal killer remained on the loose, free to kill again. As Mark struggles in navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in his community and beyond. Stained by Blood. Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood. At HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood. to this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. Um, HagmanReport.com, that's our website. Certainly uh, check that every day. Also, folks, just to let you know, HomelandSecurityUS.com, I'm bringing that back, uh, the the um, regathering of investigators, covert uh, surveillance operatives for the Northeast Intelligence Network, infiltrating and infiltrating the uh, seditious groups, I, I, I term them seditious, here in the United States, organizing for action, uh, refusefascism.org and other groups. I'm not going to get into all of them, but uh, making their way um, through and into these groups. So keep your eye on that. I'll be having more. I'll be giving you more information about that as well. Also, folks, if you're listening to this via BTR, Global Star, regardless of the venue, Global Star Radio Network, thank you so much for carrying our program, BTR as well. Please, uh, nonetheless, subscribe to our YouTube channel. That uh, even with the censorship that's going on today, you have to understand with the, with the censorship that's going on today. Let me tell you something: it is so important uh, to to get those numbers up. And we we've got, you know, last month alone we had, uh, I, I don't know, I think it was uh, close to two million downloads just on one platform alone of our of our program. And they're 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 messing with the numbers so look help us out help us out through this this uh, fog of censorship that we're seeing here and the and of course the people who don't want us to to uh broadcast or to you know attain certain levels are are, are messing with the numbers and and you see this you know this and there's a there's censorship galore taking place but anyway and also again subscribe to our channel and uh, bookmark our website. But the, our next guest here, this guest that we have with us, Mr. Michael Cutler. Visit michaelcutler.net. michaelcutler.net. What was that? Yeah, <laughs> B-D, B-D. I yeah, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-C-U-T-L-E-R.net. That's michaelcutler.net. And uh, I spoke with, with uh, Michael before the show, <clears throat> and he's a former INS agent, um, and so much more. He... Uh, 
He has his own radio show, The Michael Cutler Hour, on Blog Talk Radio Friday, Friday evenings at 7 p.m. And uh, we'll let we'll bring him on so he can explain a little bit more about his background and what he came on to talk about. Mr. Cutler, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for having me on, Doug. It's great to, uh, to be with you. Uh, you know, I was an INS agent for 30 years. And my career with the INS began, I hate to admit how long ago, back in 1971. Um, I was an immigration inspector initially. And um, uh, are you able to hear me okay, by the way? Yes, sir. Okay, good. I just wanted to make sure. And um, so I started as an inspector at Kennedy Airport. I spent uh, four years doing that. Then I wound up um, doing one year as an examiner, an examiner, or what we now call an adjudications officer, doing the marriage interviews. And then finally, in 1975, I became a special agent um, and rotated through all the squads within the investigations branch. I became the first immigration agent in New York City to be assigned to the Unified Intelligence Division of the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. In 1991, I was promoted to senior special agent and assigned to the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force had desks at the FBI, DEA, ATF. I've worked with foreign governments, including uh, Great Britain, Canada, Israel, Japan, and others. Uh, and I came to the realization through my career that immigration and national security are inextricably intertwined. Uh, you know, when you stop and think about it, the mission of America's military, no matter which branch, is to keep the enemies of America as far from our shores as possible. Up close and in person, the job of uh, defending us against the entry of the bad actors, terrorists, spies, international uh, criminals, falls to the Border Patrol, and then behind the Border Patrol are the special agents who do enforcement of the immigration laws from within the interior of the United States. And I've arrested terrorists in my career. My very first solo case, I was assigned to the frauds unit. We had a young man come into Kennedy International Airport in 1976 with an altered visa, long story short, playing a hunch. It was supposed to be a ground ball, nothing investigation. It led to the prevention of a terror attack at an Israeli oil refinery. Uh, working with the FBI, working with the Israelis, we stopped the attack. So when people say, well, we're just going to go after criminal aliens, that's short-sighted. Uh, unofficially, I worked with Senator Al D'Amato back in the early 80s to create what became the aggravated felon reentry law that makes reentry by criminal aliens after they're deported a felony with up to 20 years in jail. And I told the senator back then, while we need to emphasize criminal aliens, because let's face it, law enforcement is a triage. You go after the most obvious, serious issues first. Don't ignore the collateral arrests, because we don't know who the bad guys are. Uh, you know, we used to hear a lot about sleeper agents. There was a lot of terminology that kind of disappeared from the conversation on immigration, especially when Mr. Obama took office. But please understand that the presidents who've come to the, to the Oval Office from both parties, at least since I started working for the INS, were globalists. Jimmy Carter insisted that we stop using the term illegal alien to describe illegal aliens. He said that uh, we were going to call them undocumented immigrants. The term alien is a legal term. It simply means any person, not a citizen or national of the United States. That's not my definition. That's the definition in the law. There's no insult there, but there is clarity. And when you're a con artist, they don't want clarity. They want to use murky language that obfuscates the truth and confounds understanding. Uh, he also ordered immigration agents, he, that is to say Jimmy Carter, 
to not make arrests of illegal aliens during the census. We quickly realized what he was up to. We knew that the great majority of illegal aliens at the time were living in population centers that were predominantly Democrats. And by the way, I'm registered as a Democrat. I can't tell you the last time I voted for a Democrat. But this isn't a left-right issue. It's a right-wrong issue. And it infuriated us because he was essentially gerrymandering seats in the House of Representatives through non-enforcement of immigration law. And it also wound up uh, shifting how many electoral votes would be in play for Democrats versus Republicans during the next presidential elections. And then along comes Ronald Reagan, who gives us the first amnesty, did not provide more agents for interior enforcement, which has always been the missing uh, link to the whole deal. And in fact, when I testified before Congress, and I've been before, I think we're up to 17 congressional hearings, and I provided testimony to the 9-11 Commission, I talked about what I call the immigration enforcement tripod. And I said that the third leg of the tripod, you know, the Border Patrol enforces the law between ports of entry, the inspectors enforce the law at ports of entry, but it's the interior enforcement mission that has been neglected. So anybody getting past that inspector at an airport, anybody getting past the Border Patrol was basically home free. Uh, when I testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee in 2013, my most recent appearance before a hearing, I said that the policies of the Obama administration had, in essence, fired the starter's pistol for aspiring illegal aliens from around the world. And for those folks, the finish line was the border of the United States. Because once they got past the border, problems solved for them. Problems just began for us. And so Reagan did not hire more more, uh, INS agents. Um, actually included a confidentiality clause in the amnesty that accompanied the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 86 that gave us that amnesty. We as immigration agents could not share the amnesty files with any other law enforcement agencies, whether it was the FBI or local homicide detectives, without a court order. If you had made that disclosure without a court order, you were committing a five-year felony. So understand that both sides of the aisle have been determined for decades to flood America with cheap foreign labor. And by the way, not just the illegals doing the difficult, dirty manual labor jobs, but you're seeing it with H-1B visas displacing American high-tech workers, which leads to security issues, which leads to the destruction of the middle class. Um, Alan Greenspan, in point of fact, testified for Chuck Schumer back on April 30th, 2009, at a hearing about comprehensive reform and said that we had to do what Bill Gates has been pushing for, greatly increased the number of high-tech visas, the H-1B visas, because he claimed that if we did that, we could eliminate the wage premium. I kid you not. The wage premium being paid to Americans with high skills, and by doing that through, through competition with foreign workers, we would greatly reduce wage inequality between Americans with skills and those with lesser skills. And the notion that you have the former chairman of the Fed making those assertions and making that recommendation and referring to American high-tech workers as the privileged elite. And on the other hand, when he spoke about the influx of illegal aliens doing the bottom jobs, he said it would only minimally suppress wages. Well, if you're working poor, how much money a month do you have to lose for you to lose your grip on having an apartment to live in? How many people became homeless when the wage suppression, because of competition by illegal immigration, 
drove their wages through the floorboards or even threw them out of work when employers who were unscrupulous decided that if they could hire illegal aliens, they wouldn't have to worry about paying all sorts of other fees. They wouldn't have to worry about taxes. They wouldn't have to worry about standards and working conditions. This has been exploitive. This isn't about the American dream. This isn't about compassion. This is about the engineered destruction of the wage structure of Americans, and it has endangered our national security. And all of this, by the way, flies in the face of the findings and recommendations of the 9-11 Commission. But don't let that get in the way of the greed that we are seeing from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, from the American Immigration Lawyers Association, from a long list of players who only care about profit, no matter what the cost is. And the cost, of course, that we've paid have been the terrorist attacks, the massive influx of gangs, narcotics, transnational criminals, the outflow of hundreds of billions of dollars annually in remittances, money being wired home by workers, both legal and illegal. We're paying a hell of a price. And that is why I really believe that when Donald Trump came along, the politicians from both political parties had a cow. Because, you see, I don't believe it's about Democrat or Republican. Today, the debate is truly about populist versus globalist. And if you think about the Founding Fathers and Thomas Jefferson, the Declaration of Independence begins with those three magic words, we the people. That was a declaration of populism. And when was the last time we had a populist in the Oval Office? Good point. How's that for putting it in perspective? Uh, quite the perspective, indeed. Um, you know, I, c- kind of related, but maybe somewhat tangential. I was looking uh, at some, I was doing some research, and I c- it came across today the uh, statistics with a uh, federal uh, uh, prison, Bureau of Prisons, looking at the inmate uh, population, of course, 187,000 plus, roughly, of inmates, and uh, 22% approximately 22% are non-U.S. citizens. That's it might lot. be higher. It might be higher. Yeah, you know, I, I'm thinking that because there's a lot of others. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Uh, I've seen numbers that run around 30%. And, you know, when I was assigned to DEA intelligence, one of the things I did back in 1988, because I was the first guy to have that assignment, and, you know, when you're the first, you get to kind of mold the job a little bit the way you might want to. And so I decided that while I was there to assist with narcotics investigations of major trafficking organizations, I wanted to know who who we were arresting. And, you know, there's that sage advice of be careful what you wish for, you might get it. Well, I had asked my boss up at DEA if they could get me a copy of all the arrest records. Now, back then, in 1988, we didn't have computers and spreadsheets. And I remember for about a week, nothing happened and I was wondering if they forgot about my request and I walked into my office and it was like a big squad area if you can imagine an office building with open areas sitting opposite me with two FBI agents a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police people from ATF people from US Customs people from the IRS obviously DEA city police state police it was an amazing opportunity to work with so many agencies and everybody was literally within arm's reach and I, I walk into my office and I can't find my desk. Because in front of my desk, next to my desk, behind my desk, under my desk, on top of my desk, and on top of my chair were boxes filled with arrest reports up to the ceiling, literally. And as I'm standing there with my mouth hanging open, 
some of the clerks from the file room with hand trucks were bringing in more boxes with more arrest reports. And everybody in the office was on the floor laughing. They said, you asked for it, you got it. And it took me about four months to dig through all that paperwork with a handheld calculator. And as I'm doing this, they're bringing me more boxes. It's like shoveling against the tide. So after three or four months, I came up with the numbers, and they blew me out of my chair. In New York City, the five boroughs of New York, roughly six zero sixty percent of the people we were arresting for drug-related crimes at the DEA task force. So this isn't people selling a joint. These are significant drug trafficking crimes. Sixty percent were foreign-born, and not just from Latin America. Asia, the Caribbean, Europe, the Middle East, you name it, we got it. <clears throat> Nationally, it was about 30%. So this is a huge number. And that, again, points out the nexus between borders, immigration, terrorism, crime, narcotics. It's the intersection of everything that would concern people. And, and what's so significant, and, and you know, we, we really should look at this, the 9-11 Commission was put together with the intention, obviously, of trying to make certain that we would not get hit again. And so, you know, you, you look at what the 9-11 Commission had to say. And by the way, I don't know if you remember this, but six months almost to the day after 9-11, it was discovered to everybody's horror that um, two of the dead terrorists, Mohammed Atta and Marwan al-Shehi, Two of the dead terrorists had been provided with authorization to attend flight school. Atta, in fact, was the ringleader. So understand that immigration was always identified as an issue. And then within a few years, everyone downplayed it. And the Democrats in particular immediately started to say things like immigration and terrorism have nothing to do with each other. So let me start out. I just want to read a couple of quick quotes. This comes from the preface of the 9-11 Commission staff report on terrorist travel. This is an official government report published by the government printing office, written by the attorneys and special agents who work with the 9-11 Commission. And it's the 9-11 Commission staff report on terrorist travel. It starts out with this preface. It is perhaps obvious to state that terrorists cannot plan and carry out attacks in the United States if they are unable to enter the country. Yet prior to September 11, while there were efforts to enhance border security, no agency of the U.S. government thought of border security as a tool in the counterterrorism arsenal. Indeed, even after 19 hijackers demonstrated the relative ease of obtaining a U.S. visa and gaining admission into the United States, border security still is not considered a cornerstone of national security policy. We believe for reasons that we discuss in the following pages that it must be made one. So right off the top, you could see that the commission looked at the situation and said, first and foremost, the failure of immigration enabled the terrorists to enter the country, enabled them to embed themselves, hide in plain sight. Now, to put this in a perspective, because this is really important, this was not something that could not have been figured out in advance. On May 20th, 1997, I did my very first uh, hearing as an expert witness before the House Immigration Subcommittee, my first congressional hearing. That hearing was on visa fraud and immigration fraud. You know, too much talk about the border, the wall on the border. That's all anyone wanted to talk about. The border with Mexico is vital. Don't misunderstand. We must secure that border. That isn't the conversation. 
but it's only one hole out of many in a very big colander that we use to drain pasta. In fact, I write for Front Page Magazine, and one of the articles that I wrote early on when I started writing for them, I, I gave it the clear title, Border Security and the Immigration Colander. We had been sold for many years this false story, this false promise, that if we could only secure that magical Mexican border, the immigration crisis would be over. That is one of the biggest lies in the world. There were so many lies. George W. Bush, globalist, who created DHS, an agency that was so thoroughly screwed up, I came to call it the Department of Homeland Surrender, not the Department of Homeland Security, was one, running around, if you remember, offering to make the immigrants legal. He was following lockstep with Jimmy Carter's false language. Language is significant, and this is not about political correctness. This is Orwellian. This is Orwellian, using false language to modify people's understandings of critical issues. So when George Bush came out and said, we're going to make the immigrants legal, uh, I had countered that by saying that offering to make immigrants legal makes as much sense as offering to make water wet. Water is wet, and the immigrants are illegal. He was talking about legalizing illegal aliens. World of difference. And the way they structured the Department of Homeland Security, they tore immigration into multiple agencies, put people from customs primarily in charge of it. They had no background or inclination to enforce immigration law. And it was disastrous. In fact, I testified at a hearing uh, 44 months after 9-11, May 5th, I believe it was, 2005, about the dual missions of the immigration uh, component of, of uh, DHS. And part of what happened there goes back to the advice I had given Congress at other hearings where I said, we've got to spin off enforcement from the benefit side, the people that determine who gets green cards, citizenship, political asylum, because those are two very conflicting uh, issues, and we've got to separate them. There needs to be a clear purpose in what we're doing. And I recommended giving this new agency that I had recommended they create the title of the Bureau of Immigration Enforcement, BIE. And I said, if you do that, 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 that name is clear to the employees, and it's equally clear to the public that this is an agency who has an enforcement mission. This is about deterrence through enforcement. And we thought that it was going to go that way, and along comes George W. Bush and says, nope, we're going to do things very differently. And at that hearing, John Hostetler, who chaired the committee, and he's a Republican, talked about how the way that the Bush administration put DHS together made it impossible to secure our borders, enforce our immigration laws, protect America, and protect Americans. Again, both sides of the aisle bear the responsibility. And I was astonished because when I walked out of the hearing, and I was very upset because they were talking about how they were still working on mission statements 44 months after 9-11, still trying to decide what the priorities for immigration enforcement was going to be. 44 months after 9-11. And in fact, I was called to that hearing by the Republicans because they were angry that they had given the president, President George W. Bush, enough money to hire um, 800 new ICE agents and 2,000 more Border Patrol agents, which I thought were very low numbers. And Bush turns around and says, oh no, forget 800 ICE agents, 143. I'll never forget the numbers. Forget 2,000 more Border Patrol agents, we're going to cut that to 210. So with that from the backdrop, I was enraged at the hearing. 
And when I walked out of the hearing, suddenly it dawned on me, and I was sorry that it hadn't dawned on me while I was sitting in front of the microphones in front of the members of the committee, subcommittee. 44 months is a magic number, and it may not be occurring to anybody listening to me right now, but take a deep breath and think of this analogy. On December 7, 1941, the entire Japanese fleet inflicted fewer casualties on America than did the 19 terrorists, young men barely out of their teens, on 9-11-2001. It took 44 months for the United States with its allies to defeat the Nazis and make the world safe for democracy. 44 months. <laughs> 44 months after the worst terror attack in the United States, they were still screwing around with mission statements and priorities. How's that for an interesting perspective? <laughs> Does that frame it for you? Uh, yeah, clearly. And if it doesn't for anyone else, I don't know what to say. Yeah. But but so so you know, and that's what I, I try to do is to get people to understand it. And and you know, where laws are concerned, when we see law violations, what's the usual reaction? Amp up law enforcement, right? That's right. Drunk driving was a problem. 1.0 was often acceptable around the country as the maximum acceptable blood alcohol level, 1.0. And the carnage was horrific. As a kid, I remember I hated driving Saturday nights because you'd be on the highways of New York City and you had people doing S-turns down the road, either going 90 miles an hour or going 8 miles an hour. <laughs> and the crashes we had were horrific because you had, you know, knuckleheads, boozed out of their gourds, smashing into each other at high speed, and these look like plane crashes, not like car crashes. So what did they do? They said, okay, forget 1.0, we're going to make it .08. And now if we catch you, we're going to take your car, we're going to take your license, we're going to take your wallet, and we're going to put your rear end in jail and take your freedom. And then we're going to publicize it. And then we're going to set up sobriety checkpoints. And lo and behold, the number of people driving drunk decreased drastically. Why? Deterrence through enforcement. The IRS, before April 15th, goes out and they round up a bunch of tax sheets, people from every walk of life imaginable, school teachers, reverends, rabbis, um, you name it, ministers, um, all sorts of people, right? And why are they doing it? And they have them do the perp walk. Why? Don't you let yourself get caught, because if you do, there's consequences, right? Isn't that the, the tradition of what they do? Yep. yep. Texting and driving. How many public service announcements? I'm, I'm convinced, you know, if I reach for that phone, SWAT will descend on my car and pull <laughs> me out through my sunroof at gunpoint, right? <laughs> yeah. Where immigration is concerned, what do both political parties say? Well, we can't deport 11 million so we should give them legal status. Well, first of all, there's probably 30 or 40 million. Mr. Reagan promised us a million. We wound up with almost 4 million. Right. In 2007, the Congressional Budget Office estimated there were 12 million illegals. How do you go from 12 million 10 years ago to 11 million today? You don't. Okay. Okay. So the numbers are bogus, just like the unemployment statistics. Yeah. Hang on. Mr. Keller, hold that thought. Uh, we're at, at I the, hear the bumper music. I'll take yeah. a deep breath. All right. <laughs> I'll grab a cup of coffee. This is fascinating, folks. Michael Cutler is our guest. Yeah, and michaelcutler.net is the website. And if it looks funny on screen, that's because during the last segment, uh, one of our 
the right. projector blew. It sounded like a nine millimeter going off, and we all jumped. Yeah, it did. Uh, that, should, that should be back up and fixed tomorrow. But Michael, Michael Cutler is our guest. MichaelCutler.net is the website. He's a former INS agent, and he's talking to us about the immigration and immigration enforcement issues. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. Stay with us. Visit HagmanReport.com for the news and articles that matter most. Stay tuned. We will be right back. There shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. Uh, folks, I'm going to direct your attention to MasterPreps.com. MasterPreps.com. Wow. Uh, MasterPreps.com, uh, the sponsor of our show, MasterPreps.com. That's MasterPreps.com. Take a visit there. High-quality items, made-in-America items. I mean, anything, everything you possibly want from uh, cooking uh, utensils, uh, cooking frying pans. To, I mean, it is, it will, it'll blow you away. Absolutely, Eric's a, It's insane. I mean, wow. Look at the products. Folks, visit masterpreps.com. Again, welcome to the Hagman and Hagman Report family. Masterpreps.com. I mean, wow, it's insane. Masterpreps.com. Are you ready for what comes next? New Year from all of us at Trading Post in the Woods. We pray you have a healthy, safe, and prosperous 2017. And we would like to thank all of you for welcoming us to the Hagman and Hagman family. You're all a very wonderful and special group of people. Because we believe it is so important for you to work and acquire good health this year, we're going to do something that we've never done before as a thank you to you for your support. We're going to make something available that we believe everyone needs. During the month of January, anyone who invests in their health by purchasing either our American Heritage Remedies Kit, our Survivalist Natural Remedies Kit, or $200 in individual remedies of your choice, we're going to give to you our crisis remedy just in case for free. Your health must be a part of your preparation plan. We're here to help you with that journey. May God bless y'all, and may God bless America. Happy New Year! everyone. This is Joe Charles, the guy whose voice is heard announcing for the Hagman and Hagman Report right here on YouTube and across the Global Star Radio Network. There have been many people wondering whose music is being played during those breaks. Well, you guessed it. And we're very pleased to announce that all that music and 11 brand new songs from the CD New Jerusalem is set for release on April 10th for download on iTunes. You can help support my ministry and be blessed by this awesome, inspiring recording. I have been fortunate to work with some phenomenal musicians from around the world that helped us put this recording together in the studio. Simply go to joecharlesmusic.com and click on the iTunes link. Or, if you'd rather have a CD, we'll send one right out to you. Just leave me your email and we'll get right back to you. And thanks to Doug and Joe Hagman for making this all possible. God bless. Hagman, Hagman, 
our very special guest, Mr. Michael Cutler, michaelcutler.net, man on a mission. Indeed, he should. He, indeed, he is. Um, well, you know, during the break, I was just explaining to, to uh, the folks in the studio, I got caught up in doing all that I've been doing since 9-11 because uh, on 9-11, and, and I had, by the way, had had an argument, besides the fact I had testified four and a half years earlier about the nexus between immigration fraud visa fraud and terrorism and, and the threat of terrorism because of the 293 terrorist attacks. Uh, you know, most people may have forgotten this, but January of 93, a Pakistani national by the name of Amil Mir Kansi shot up the CIA, killed two CIA officers, wounded three others, and fled the country. And in order to get into the compound, he bought into a courier service. You know, courier vans are as ubiquitous as yellow taxi cabs in midtown Manhattan. And so this one cold January morning, he pulls into the parking lot of the CIA compound because he had a permit to go past the gates, jumped out of the van with an AK-47 and opened fire. And um, as all foreign nationals who commit crimes in America can do, he availed himself of that escape hatch known as leaving the country. Except in his case, our guys tracked him down like the dog that he was, dragged him back here, we put him on trial, found him guilty and executed him but it didn't bring back the dead or, or, or fix the wounds of those he had crippled. And one month later, we had the first bombing at the World Trade Center. Six people dead, over a 1,000 people injured, over a half billion, with a B, in damages. They almost brought the tower down sideways. I don't even want to imagine what the casualty count would have been. And what was so remarkable, I was home on sick leave when that happened. I was watching TV, and the TV went out because the cables got severed and we had the broadcast towers on top of the Trade Center. And within a week or so, I remember walking through midtown Manhattan, or downtown Manhattan rather, and I bumped into a bunch of my buddies. I was with the drug task force. So I was working with everybody from everywhere. It was kind of like a game of pick up basketball, except this was pick up lunch. And we wound up going to one of those marvelous Irish pubs in lower Manhattan. And the uh, folks there, the, the owners, recognized us for being law enforcement. They said, what do you want? We'll give it to you. We'll give you the check, and we'll get out of your way so you guys can have a meeting. We have a sense you want, a, you want privacy, and we did. So they gave us you know, a, a mountain of burgers. We paid our bill, and then we just sat there for a couple of hours behind the closed door. And everybody in that room, ATF, FBI, DEA, New York City Police, New York State Police, everybody was convinced that this was the watershed moment for immigration. It was obvious to everybody that it was a failure of immigration that enabled those dirtbags into the country, enabled them to carry out that deadly attack, and only but for the grace of God, we didn't have a couple of hundred thousand dead bodies. I mean, if they had blown out the uh, what was called the bathtub, the seawall that kept the Hudson River out of lower Manhattan, Canal Street might have really had a new meaning. And so this was unbelievable. And the Clinton administration did absolutely nothing in response to this horrific terrorist attack. It literally and figuratively left the door open to that which followed. But I remember sitting there during that lunch, and I said to the guys at the table, I said, if I had a magic wand that can make all the criminal aliens in New York vanish, what would you be focused on? And I don't remember if it was the FBI agent or the ATF agent, because they both chimed in. But the two responses were, one, I'll be working on my golf swing because it stinks. And the other one said that he had a back deck that needed to be replaced. They both opined that without criminal aliens in New York, there'd be very little work for anybody to do in law enforcement. That's how significant the That's impact significant. is. Yeah. 
when you drive down Roosevelt Avenue in Jackson Heights, Queens, it used to be controlled by the Colombians. The Mexicans have taken over the drug trade. And what may have gone unnoticed by many people is that El Chapo Guzman, the most notorious of all Mexican drug cartel leaders, has been brought to the United States and was arraigned in the Eastern District of New York because of his drug trafficking activities in Queens. The drugs are coming across from Arizona, and they're being distributed throughout the United States. And if you go through Roosevelt Avenue, every single block has one money wire remitter after another, the money wire services, whether it's uh, Western Union, whether it's Brand X, whether it's the travel agencies, they're all moving money. Moving money on a scale that nobody can begin to comprehend. The money is paying for the cartels. The money is winding up in the hands of terrorists. And the money is da- damaging, destroying our economy. And the drugs are killing our children and their future. It's behind most of our violent crime. So if you understand that, and you understand that heroin is not produced in the United States, heroin is purely produced outside the United States, whether it's produced in Mexico, the Middle East, or Asia, it's imported, it's smuggled. Every single gram of heroin present in the United States provides graphic, irrefutable evidence of a failure of border security. So when Mr. Obama would lie through his teeth and say the border is secure, And I can never forget that news conference in El Paso. Oh, the other side are going to want the moat. And then they're going to want alligators in the moat. Well, I went to El Paso. I worked with a law firm on a case down there. This is a dangerous part of the country. And if you want to know how porous our borders are, understand that the demand for heroin, in part because of the opiates being used as painkillers by doctors and so forth, have hooked people on heroin, opiates. And heroin is a lot cheaper than prescription drugs. So the demand for heroin has gone through not the roof, but the stratosphere. And under economic principles, when the demand goes through the stratosphere, the price goes through the stratosphere, but not with heroin. The price of heroin has never, ever been cheaper than it is today. The only way that heroin could be dirt cheap with the demand in the stratosphere is that if there is a limitless supply, we have a limitless supply. And it all comes from outside the United States. It's coming across the Mexican border. It's coming in ships. It's coming through international airport and cargo holds of airplanes. And it's coming across the Canadian border. We are awash in heroin. And the only way that could happen is if our borders are not secure. And along comes Donald Trump and says, we're going to secure the border. And you have people like Senator Menendez from New Jersey saying it's a wall of hate. It's going to stop trade. So let's take a deep breath and think about what Donald Trump is talking about. The wall that he will build is not going to go across ports of entry. It's just going to make certain that people and goods move through ports of entry. How is that a wall of hate? You see? But this is the language of the other side. And unfortunately, the other side isn't about Democrat or Republican. John McCain, Lindsey Graham are no better, and they're supposedly Republicans. You know, I'm a lifelong Democrat. I'm a labor guy. My my father was a construction worker. Um, My father and my mother are my biggest heroes. Um, My dad was was a tradesman, as he liked to say, a plumber who did construction work, not repair work. He worked on the World's Fair. 
I used to hang out on construction sites. When I listen to Donald Trump, I hear the voice of the men my father worked with and worked for when I was a kid. I literally carried my dad off his job his last day of work when I was 19, and he was 57, in part because he smoked Chesterfield blowtorches, and I hated them, but also because he worked in the Navy shipyards during the Second World War because he had to contribute to the war effort. His brother was in the Army Air Corps, and because of the tragedy of the five Sullivan brothers killed on a Navy ship, my father, a sole uh, member of the family, male member of the family, could not enlist in the military because his brother was there. So his reaction was, I've got to defend America. He really wanted to go overseas and kill Nazis. Didn't have that opportunity, so he had to help the war machinery by working in the shipyards. And my mother came here ahead of the Holocaust. Her mother was killed in Poland because we're Jews. I was named for my mother's mother. So, you know, uh, first of all, I want to make it clear. I'm not anti-immigrant, but I am pro-enforcement. These are the lies that are told. When I was an immigration inspector, I prevented bad guys from entering the United States. But I, I let many more in that I kept out, and I was happy to do it. I admitted refugees who had been vetted, and even if we screwed up, those refugees would not have posed a threat to American lives. If we screwed up, nobody was getting killed by the mistakes. Today we are. I admitted foreign students. I admitted new immigrants from all over the world. I was happy to do it. I admitted tourists and tried to make the experience one of uh, welcoming and make it as pleasant as I could when I was an immigration examiner and adjudications officer. I uncovered a, a marriage fraud ring that involved, believe it or not, only in New York. Well, I, I guess I couldn't say that. It probably would happen elsewhere. But we had Chinese crewmen getting married to Puerto Rican lesbian hookers. I kid you not. Oh, and good. it wound up with my with my first uh, stint on the witness stand in federal court. But, of course, I can't tell you how many more times I wound up on the witness stand, but I was a new kid on the block then. But I also authorized green cards for hundreds of new immigrants, and I was happy to see them get their lawful status. See, this isn't about being opposed to immigration. It's about being opposed to illegal immigration and making certain that the system has integrity. So let me just read one more thing to sure. you. If you want to talk about integrity, this is on page 47 of that 9-11 Commission staff report on terrorist travel. Once terrorists had entered the United States, their next challenge was to find a way to remain here. Their primary method was immigration fraud. For example, Yusuf and Ajaj concocted bogus political asylum stories when they arrived in the United States. Mahmoud Abu Alima, involved in both the World Trade Center and landmark plots, received temporary residence under the Seasonal Agriculture Worker Program after falsely claiming that he picked beans in Florida. The only thing in point of fact folks that he planted was that bomb in the garage of the Trade Center. And then we get to page uh, 98, and, and this is so crystal clear. And think of the politicians from both parties insisting that we're going to legalize these people. And the only debate is do we give them citizenship or not. They don't need citizenship, they just need lawful status, because listen to this paragraph. As I said to Jim Sensenbrenner when he chaired the House Judiciary Committee, I said, Mr. Chairman, if I can't sleep at night, sure as hell I'm not going to let you sleep at night either. Share my pain. Terrorists in the 1990s, as well as the September 11th hijackers, needed to find a way to stay in or embed themselves in the United States if their operational plans were to come to fruition. As already discussed, this could be accomplished legally by marrying an American citizen, achieving temporary worker status, think of those hundreds of thousands of dreamers, folks, it can be as old as 31, or applying for asylum after entering. 
In many cases, the act of filing for an immigration benefit sufficed to permit the alien to remain in the country until the petition was adjudicated. Terrorists were free to conduct surveillance, coordinate operations, obtain and receive funding, go to school and learn English, make contacts in the United States, acquire necessary materials, and execute an attack. Is there any ambiguity to what I just read to you? Not at all. No. Then how can you, as a member of Congress, how can you, as a President of the United States, be an advocate for providing unknown millions of illegal aliens who entered the United States surreptitiously with lawful status? They evaded the inspections process. The open borders immigration anarchists refer to them as undocumented. In point of fact, what they are was entrance without inspection, the inspection process that was designed to keep out terrorists, criminals, aliens with dangerous diseases, and so forth. So it's not that they're undocumented, although, you know, if you want to say that, then you could say that you can't tell a good guy from a bad guy without a scorecard. Undocumented means they have no scorecard, but these folks were uninspected. Or you have the aliens like the terrorists who violated the terms of their visas or committed visa fraud to enter the United States. Along comes Donald Trump and says, we've got to do something about it. So he comes up with an executive order, and we saw where the courts knocked it down, and they're, they're lining up to sue him again, even though they changed it. And Jeff Sessions is, I think, a brilliant prosecutor. I had the privilege, because in 2007, I believe it was, I had testified before three House hearings and one Senate hearing about comprehensive immigration reform, and I was so frustrated, I decided that that ill-conceived legislation needed a new and more honest and descriptive name. So I wrote an op-ed for the Washington Times, and I came to refer to comprehensive immigration reform as being the Terrorist Assistance and Facilitation Act. Senator Sessions liked my article so much, he quoted me from the floor of the United States Senate with attribution on three separate occasions and then sent me a certificate commemorating it. In fact, one of the 9-11 family members, my good friend Bruce DeSell, who was a former New York City cop, and his son-in-law, the son of a fire battalion chief in New York, was killed on 9-11. And Bruce called me up. I was sitting in my car, and he said, Mike, quick, put the TV on. Sessions is on the floor of the Senate. And I said, Bruce, I'm sitting in my car. So he held his phone next to his TV because it was on C-SPAN. And I got to tell you, it was quite a moment sitting in my car in Brooklyn, listening to a United States senator quoting me by name and telling the other members of the Senate, you must listen to what Mr. Cutler, a former INS senior special agent, has to say. And then he quoted that expression, that phrase, the Terrorist Assistance and Facilitation Act. My wife got in the car, and we were having arguments about the wisdom of all the things I was doing up until that day. And she got in the car and said, wow, you have a weird look on your face. Are you okay? I said, you mean I look weirder than usual? And we had our usual laugh about it. And I said, Senator Sessions just quoted me. She said, are you serious? I said, yes. And two days later, a package arrives in the mail. Her eyes were the size of silver dollars. She ran to a local store and had it framed. It's hanging in my bedroom. I'm staring at it right now because my desk where I do my work is in the bedroom. And, and that's something that I look at every morning as encouragement that we can make a difference. So, of course, Sessions is evil incarnate to the anarchists 
who don't want our borders secured, who don't want to stop the flow of illegal aliens, and the news media won't cover the story. Because here's something that nobody is telling you. If you want to talk about an unintended consequence, I want everyone to stop and think about this. If, let's say, the same kind of ratio happens that we saw with Reagan, we were told about a million, we wind up with nearly four million, we're being told 11 million, we could wind up with, what, 30 or 40 million. Think of that number. Many of them aren't even here yet. The talking heads on TV. Well, if an alien's been living in the United States for seven years, eight years, nine years, five years, pick a number out of the hat, and they haven't been arrested, of course we should let them stay. No one ever stops them and says, well, wait a minute. You're dealing with millions upon millions, tens of millions of people. There won't be any interviews. There won't be any field investigations. They won't be able to run the bureaucratic machinery fast enough to keep up. And it only takes about 30 minutes to approve an application. It takes days or weeks to deny an application because you need legal sufficiency. You've got to write a report. You've got to write an official denial. Attorneys have to check it for legal sufficiency in anticipation of a challenge of an appeal. So understand that almost every application gets approved. Terrorists would easily slip through, as we saw with the, nine, with the 93 bombing. But here's the other part. Besides the irrevocable damage it would do to national security, every single last one of all of those illegal aliens would immediately, upon being granted lawful status, have the absolute right to petition the government to immediately within whatever, a day or two, bring every single one of their minor children and their spouses to the United States. Nice. 30 million aliens, and now let's say only one in three has kids. We'll be optimistic. But most of the people that I arrested, when you ask them how many children they have, they puff out their chest, and they will tell you eight that I know of, six that I know of, <laughs> and they laugh. What happens when we wind up with more kids coming into America than the number of aliens we legalize, and then we immediately put them into our school systems that are crumbling as we speak. What happens when you look at that Congressional Budget Office report from 2007 that estimated that it costs 20 to 40 percent more to educate a child who can't speak English? What happens if an, among that population, as we saw with that a wave of unaccompanied minors, and there was a hearing in April of last year before the House Immigration Subcommittee conducted by Trey Gowdy, and I've spoken with Trey a number of times. I think he's really trying to do the right thing, and I appreciate the prosecutor that he is. What, and they had this hearing where a sheriff from Maryland said that since those unaccompanied minors came into the country from Central America, in Maryland, his deputies, when they get called out because of a crime of violence committed in the schools, over 60% of the time, I think it was 62 or 63% of the time, it involves one of those unaccompanied minors who's part of a gang committing crimes of violence in the schools. So understand that any kind of a massive legalization program would be catastrophic to our educational system, to health care, criminal justice, People coming in perhaps haven't been inoculated, might be bringing with them dangerous diseases. If you go through the categories of aliens to be excluded from the United States, Title VIII, United States Code, Section 1182 is very clear on that. It's an important section of law for another reason that I will get to in about 30 seconds. But it includes aliens with dangerous communicable diseases. Ellis Island was, after all, a quarantine station. Aliens who suffer severe mental illness. Aliens who are criminals, spies 
terrorists, human rights violators, war criminals, fugitives from justice, prior deportees, and then we get to aliens who would likely become a public charge, or if they work, would displace American workers. Now, Section F of that section of law, and this is really critical, because we're hearing all the screaming about how what Trump is doing is so unfair by saying he's going to keep people out of countries that might pose a threat to our safety. And every newspaper and every television program in America, mainstream media, refers to those six countries as Muslim-majority countries, but that's not why they're on the list. They are on the list because they are essentially failed states and they have a clear nexus to terrorism if they aren't out-and-out supporters of terrorism, as is the case with Iran. And it's remarkable because on uh, February the 24th, 1998, two days short of the fifth anniversary of the Trade Center bombing, we had a senator at a hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee. The hearing was on foreign terrorists operating in the United States, and she said, that there were three things she thought we might want to consider doing. Number one, end the visa waiver program. It was a pilot program then. The other point, she said, is maybe we should stop giving visas to countries, who, uh, to the citizens of countries that sponsor terrorism. And finally, she said, we certainly should be reconsidering whether we should allow students from those countries that sponsor terrorism to study nuclear physics and biochemistry in the United States because we're teaching them to make weapons of mass destruction. This right-wing lunatic senator, this extreme nutcase, was Diane Feinstein. And it made perfect sense. And the reason that we've gone from 26 visa waiver countries on 9-11 and should have zero now, but we have 38, many were added by George W. Bush, by the way, is because the U.S. Chamber of Commerce started a program known as the Discover America Partnership. They've partnered with the hotel, hospitality, and travel industries. They are dumping God knows how many tens of millions of dollars into political campaign coffers from both sides of the aisle, pushing the elimination of visa requirements. I guess they're promoting business for the funeral home industry also. And how reassuring is it to know that people responsible for clean linen and room service are now making national security decisions? But when people talk about what the president is doing and how he's acting outside the law, Section F of 1182 says this, and it's a short sentence. And notice this says the president alone. Whenever the president finds that the entry of any aliens or of any class of aliens into the United States would be detrimental to the interests of the United States. Think of what a low bar that is, detrimental to the interests. Doesn't need to have an, an atom bomb strapped to his back, doesn't have to have the Ebola virus. The president looks and says, you know what, this is detrimental. The president may, by proclamation and for such period as he shall deem necessary, suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens as immigrants or non-immigrants or impose on the entry of aliens any restrictions that he may deem to be appropriate. So where's the beef? And, and the by the way, if you right. want to talk about if you want to talk about constitutionality, then why don't we consider Article Four, Section Four of the U.S. Constitution, which reads. The United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion. And on application of the legislature or of the executive, when the legislature cannot be convened against domestic violence. Is that not what the president is now trying to do? Have I lost my mind, guys? Hmm. 
we're we're about uh we're about four minutes out you got you got the floor for the rest of the four minutes this is fascinating yeah. it's important information uh well you know as i say since 9 11 i've been a man on a mission but folks if this fires you up you need to be involved i will tell you if you have children or grandchildren and you are not involved in politics and i don't mean taking to the streets like the wackaloons i'm not talking about a mopocracy but i am talking about going to town hall meetings and questioning your elected representatives to make certain that they truly represent you. If you're not doing this, you're not doing your job as a parent. Because the decisions being made by our politicians on all level of government, you look at sanctuary cities, there's nothing sanctuary about it. They're only protecting the bad guys and endangering national security and the safety of the people within those municipalities and neighboring municipalities because they can use those sanctuary cities as staging areas. If you allow this to happen and you don't voice the obverse viewpoint, shame on you because you're hurting all of us. My father taught me that I should teach people how they would treat me by demonstrating what I was willing to accept. And when we say nothing, the presumption is made that the foolish Americans are sitting back and they don't notice or they don't care. The politicians want to win re-election. They are scared to death of having to have an honest job in more ways than one an honest job you see when you contrast the politicians with a guy like homer hickam who wrote the book rocket boy that became the screenplay october sky a movie every kid should have to see he grew up in coalwood his father was a coal miner he delivered the eulogy at the stago mine disaster he became a nasa engineer an amazing life story and he spoke at the eulogy when that mine disaster occurred a decade ago and said something that brought tears to my eyes because he made me think of my father and his buddies he said, there's no water holier than the sweat off a man's brow. Contrast that with these politicians. Shame on us for reelecting any politician who could talk about the work an American won't do. Or the need to bring in the world's best and brightest, like Ted Cruz did during the campaign, when the world's best and brightest are called Americans. Don't tell me about American exceptionalism, and then tell me you want to bring in the world's best and brightest. It's Americans who went to the moon, Americans who built the Panama Canal, Americans who broke the sound barrier, and Americans who sent space probes past the solar system. So when I hear this nonsense, I don't blame the politicians, I blame we the people, because we're lousy employers. And, and I hope that everybody out there will check out my website. It's Michael Cutler, C-U-T-L-E-R, one word, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-C-U-T-L-E-R, michaelcutler.net. I write for capsweb.org, C-A-P-S, Californians for Population Stabilization. Very happy to be a columnist for David Horowitz Freedom Center. That publication is frontpagemag.com. I also write for The Social Contract. And I'm thrilled to go on radio programs or do public speaking events because this is about conveying the truth. The First Amendment speaks not only about freedom of press, speech, and religion, but the right for peaceable assemblage and the right to petition the government for grievances. Folks, if you don't have grievances, you better check for a flatline EEG. And I always like to make the point that democracy is not a spectator sport, so I urge everyone to get involved. Yeah, you, you timed that just right. You, your message was on point, and uh, we'll just just wow. And, and uh, I want to thank Ocasa, Ocaso Media. Thank you so much for arranging this interview, Michael Cutler. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I know you've been you've testified before committees, uh, Senate. Uh, uh, you've been on every television display hearings and every place else. Yeah, I, I've been yeah. a man on a mission. Nine yeah. eleven. And, and and thank you, thank you for well, all of your I, information. 
Well, thank you. Thank you for providing me with the opportunity to speak to your terrific audience. I, oh. I hope you get involved. Amen, brother. Until next time, and we do hope you'll you'll come back. And uh, it's been fascinating. Thank you so very much. God bless you, my friend. Be well, guys. Thank you. You as well. Have a wonderful evening. All right, you too. That'll do it for us, folks. The Hagman Report, Hagman and Hagman dot com, HagmanReport dot com. Michael Cutler, the former INS agent, MichaelCutler.net. The man, he is a man on a mission. Let me tell you. And um, wow, it's fascinating. Uh, yeah, we're we're without a backdrop. The projector uh, blew up mid show. Yeah, sound like a nine millimeter going off. We all ducked. Don't forget tomorrow, Steve Quayle will be with us in hours two and three. It's going to be a great show. So until then, stay safe. God bless. Have a great night. <laughs>